morning, Your Honor. And may it please the Court, Adam Landis from Landis, Rath & Cobb, here on behalf of FTX Trading Limited and its affiliated debtors. Your Honor, parties are mindful of the limited time we have in court today. I understand, Your Honor, need to leave the bench at 2. No later than 2. No later than 2. I'm going to just push through. There will be no lunch break. I'll just push through until we get to sometime between 1.30 and 2. Terrific. Whatever is a convenient break. And we aim to use the time as efficiently as possible. Based on parties' travel plans, a lot of people have come a long way for this hearing today. The parties have determined to go forward first, with Your Honor's permission, with item number 8, which is the JPL's motion for declaration regarding the automatic stay, or in the alternative, lifting the stay. And we would move everything else to the back of the agenda. Those items that need to go to the back of the agenda are items number 7 and 9, which are sealing motions. We also have on the agenda item 4 and 10. Item 4 is the keep, which had no objections, and we filed a request to have the order signed. But we also have item 10, which is the keep sealing order. Objections were due at the hearing in connection with that. We have not heard about any objections that were going to be raised, so we wanted to see if those matters could be dispatched before we got going. But if not, we're content to have them moved to the back of the agenda and deal with them. We can deal with the keep. It was submitted under COC, so that order will be entered. Is there any objection to the sealing motion? Hearing no objection, I will enter that order as well. Okay, and with that, Your Honor, I will cede the podium to counsel for the JPLs. I will note that we did submit a pretrial order yesterday, a proposed pretrial order, that would govern the conduct of this hearing. And, again, aimed towards efficiency in trying to get everything done to allow people to be here, witnesses to be on, and to get out of Dodge, as it were. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Lynch. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. Jason Zicke of White & Case on behalf of the JPLs. As counsel indicated, we have conferred with counsel for the debtor, the committee, and the other parties and have a proposed process to go forth today with the court's permission, and I'd just like to lay that out for you. First, the parties have agreed to waive openings and proceed directly to the evidence. With respect to the evidence, the parties have agreed to 54 joint exhibits, which were submitted along with the pretrial order, to which there were no objections. And with the court's permission, we would jointly offer those into evidence. Okay. Any objections? Admitted without objection. There were a handful of exhibits that the debtors had offered over which there were some objections. My understanding from counsel for the debtors is those are withdrawn, so we don't need to address those. Okay. And then with regard to the witnesses, Your Honor, there are three, two for the JPLs and one for the debtors. In an effort to keep this as efficient but yet as effective as possible, the agreement is so we have two witnesses. One is one of the JPLs, Mr. Peter Greaves, who will be subject to cross-examination. We would propose to offer his declaration but still do a brief direct, hitting a few points, but by offering the declaration, that direct can be truncated. And then we have a second witness who is our foreign law, Bahamian law expert, who I understand will not be subject to any cross-examination, although she's present should the court have any questions. And we would propose to offer to do her testimony simply 
uh, by the declaration unless the court has questions for her. Okay. And the debtors have one witness, Mr. Mosley. Uh, some of them, Mr. Greaves, he will be subject to cross. And so I believe they intend to both offer the declaration um, and a direct, but by putting the declaration, that de uh, direct can be truncated. Okay. So if that works with the court, um, we would proceed to the JPL's first witness and call Mr. Peter Greaves. Okay, Mr. Greaves, come forward, please. Please take a stand and remain standing. Please raise your right hand. Please state your full name and spell your last name for the court record, please. Peter James Greaves, G-R-E-A-V-E-S. Do you affirm that you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the best of your knowledge and abilities? Yes. You may be seated, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, as I indicated, Mr. Greaves submitted a declaration. It can be found at docket number 1194 in support of the JPL's motion, uh, and we would offer that declaration uh, into evidence at this time. Any objection? It's admitted without objection. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Greaves, good morning. Good morning. Could you please introduce yourself to the court and tell us what you do for a living, sir? Yes, good morning, Your Honor. My name is Peter James Greaves. I am a partner in PricewaterhouseCoopers, based in Hong Kong, and my role there is to lead PWC's insolvency and restructuring practice across Asia Pacific. And uh, roughly how large is the group that you lead at PricewaterhouseCoopers? Uh, across Asia, it's uh, several hundred uh, partners and staff. And, and how long have you worked as a restructuring professional? I think uh, I'm in year 33. And do you have any special licenses um, that you use in the course of your job as a restructuring professional? I'm licensed as a, an insolvency practitioner to take, uh, to take formal appointments such as liquidations, administrations, receiverships, etc. Um, licenses in, in the UK. Now, could you describe for us, please, sir, the types of jurisdictions and the various jurisdictions in which you've worked over the course of your career? Yes, I've um, worked on cases in a large number of jurisdictions, maybe maybe 20 or more, um, but but in a in a smaller number uh, of countries, I've I've taken appointments, um, and they tend to be jurisdictions that follow um, common law or, or have their insolvency law based on UK law, um, in in order that there's commonality with those systems. Now, over the course of your career, could you just describe for the court um, the experience you've had with liquidations or provisional liquidations under the English system? Yes. Uh, as mentioned, I, uh, I get involved in a number of different formal appointments, um, varying slightly by jurisdiction. Um, but liquidations, um, I, I think I would have been involved in you know, perhaps 100 or more uh, over my career so far. And could you describe for us, please, sir, uh, under the English system, what the duties of a liquidator are? Yes, uh, at its simplest, it's to um, investigate and establish the assets of the estate, uh, and on the other side of the tally, to investigate and establish uh, the creditors, um, the liabilities of the estate, um, and to try and match those with, with the other side. Now, um, is 
Prior to your work on the FTX digital markets case, had you ever served as a liquidator um, in any case in the Bahamas? I have not. And could you please describe for me what the um, requirements are or qualifications for a liquidator or a provisional liquidator to serve in the Bahamas? Yes. Um, to take a, a, to present oneself to the court um, as being uh, able to take such an appointment, the practitioner needs to be um, locally based and locally experienced, or have a, um, a qualification or a license recognised by the Supreme Court of the Bahamas. Um, and the UK um, license that I hold uh, qualifies. I think there are maybe two more, maybe Canada and Australia as well, um, allow one to take appointments in, in the Bahamas. Now, I'd like to shift a little bit to talk about this particular engagement. Um, who appointed you to your role as a joint provisional liquidator for the estate of um, FTX Digital Markets? The appointment was made by the, the Supreme Court of the Bahamas. And when did that occur? I was appointed on um, Monday the 14th of November 2022. Prior to your appointment as a joint provisional liquidator for FTX Digital Markets, did you have any connection or involvement with FTX or any of its affiliates? No, none whatsoever, no. Prior to your appointment as a joint provisional liquidator, did you have any connection or involvement with any of the founders of FTX? No, I did not. No. Could you please describe for the court um, generally what uh, if any fiduciary duties you have in your role as a joint provisional liquidator and who those duties may run to? Yes, the um, provisional liquidators are supervised um, by the appointing court. Um, the primary fiduciary duty is to the creditors of the, um, of the company or creditors of the company. Now, as a joint provisional liquidator for FTX Digital Markets, what is it, what is your goal? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? At the risk of repeating slightly an earlier question, um, I, I, I would I would summarise as trying to establish the, um, the the nature and quantum of assets caught within the perimeter uh, of the estate um, as at the date of insolvency, um, and to establish um, and make contact with uh, the creditors of the estate. Now. What brings us here today is an application that the JPLs would like to file um, in the Supreme Court of the Bahamas. <coughs> Could you describe for the court um, what that application is? Um, again, um, it, it relates to the two main points that I've just mentioned, but uh, we are looking for, for guidance from um, the Bahamas court on how we may proceed. Um, the Provisional liquidators are very much expected to um, make their own decisions as far as possible if it's within the duties um, accorded to them uh, by the law and the order appointing them. Um, but if uh, the liquidators reach a stage where they um, need to take directions, then um, we're obliged to do that uh, by referring to the Bahamas Court. And that's what this application um, relates to. It's, it's um, seeking directions on a number of points critical um, to the um, 
execution of our roles. I think you said two of the things that you try to identify as a joint provisional liquidator are assets and liabilities of the estate. Could you give the court an example of a specific matter related to the assets of FTX digital markets um, from which you require direction from the Bahamian court? Yes. Um, the, the, w w without necessarily going through all of them, the, the, the assets that from the records we have appear to be in the estate or likely in the estate at the outset were cash in bank accounts, um, potentially um, digital assets. Uh, and then there's some real property um, and, and other chattel assets, I've described them as. Um, there are questions around um, who those assets belong to. And if I take the example of cash, um, the cash that was in the name of FTX Digital at the outset of the insolvency, um, were principally in two types of accounts, either um, accounts that appeared to be operated for general expenses and were either marked as such or, or not marked in any particular way at all. And there are, there are other accounts um, that we took over that are marked uh, for the benefit of, um, not necessarily stating who, who, who they were held for the benefit, benefit of, but the assumption is that they may be held in trust for the benefit of customers. Um, and until we can establish, um, A, that those uh, cash assets, for example, sit within the perimeter of the estate, and, and it appears that they do, they're in accounts in the name of the entity, uh, and until we can establish on what basis they're held, whether they're held um, as a general asset of the estate or on trust for the beneficiaries, um, which appear maybe the customers or, or customers, then we, we, we can't proceed. Now, shifting to the other side of the lever, could, ledger, could you give the court an example of an issue with respect to the liabilities of the FTX digital markets estate from which you would like to seek um, or need to seek uh, guidance from the Bahamian court? Yes, the, um, I, su I suppose the uh, principal uh, challenge that we're facing or, or the collective estates are facing is that it, it's unclear um, from the evidence we have available to us um, to what extent customer relationships um, uh, transferred or, 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 or migrated to um, FTX Digital from FTX Trading. Um, we see evidence that strongly suggests to us that that is likely to have happened, but again, in order to proceed, we need guidance from our court um, and, and to get some input to that. Now, in the 33 years that you have um, worked as a restructuring professional and then the hundreds of cases in which you've been involved as a liquidator, have you ever before um, sought permission from a foreign court in order to go to the appointing court uh, to seek direction? I have not needed to. I don't, I don't recall a, a time when I've had to do that. So could you explain why you're doing that here? Um, We, the, the, the JPLs um, prepared this application um, for the reasons I've explained, and uh, we shared that information with the debtors under the cooperation agreement to let them know what we were intending to do. And that drew a two-pronged response. Um, firstly, an adversary proceeding was filed um, in, in this court uh, 
very quickly thereafter. And secondly, we were put on notice that the debtors believed that um, we would be willfully breaching the stay if we proceeded with that application. Um, so, um, certainly speaking for myself, but I think I speak for all three JPLs, I was motivated not to fall foul um, of, of such a breach if, if that were the case. Now, could you explain to Judge Dorsey what, if any, consequences would follow for the JPLs and for the provisional liquidation in the Bahamas if um, the JPLs are not able to file the application for which um, you're seeking permission? Um, from a very practical perspective, we can't do our jobs. Um, and to, uh, yeah, to describe that another way, we can't fulfill our duties. Um, we're, we're unable to um, do the two um, basic things I described at the outset, which is um, having clarity around the assets within the estate uh, and, and who, they, who they might belong to. Now, I just want to make sure I understand a little more about the, the duties that, that you have as a provisional liquidator, if you understand them. Let's say you woke up this morning and decided you wanted to make your life a lot easier and save us all a lot of time. Do, do you, as a JPL, have the, the power or the authority to just give up and, and close the provisional liquidation? No, no, I do not. Do um, you, as a JPL, have the authority to just give up on the effort to identify customers and agree that to the extent any customers uh, migrated to FTX digital markets, you would uh, send them back to FTX trading or some other entity? No such discretion uh, without, without the permission of the court or the agreement of the court, uh, of the Bahamas court to do so. And you know, we're here in Delaware, it's, it's a lovely city, Judge Dorsey's an excellent judge. Um, do you have the authority as a JPL to just agree that um, you are going to take your directions from a U.S. court rather than the Bahamian court on any of these issues? I do not, know. The, the duties we have are set out uh, in statute and supplemented in the order appointing us, and uh, the, there is no such um, discretion or power. And under the Bahamian law, you are required to take direction from which court? The Supreme Court of the Bahamas. Thank you. Your Honor, at this point, uh, we would rest um, on his declaration for the rest of his direct testimony and have no further questions. Thank you. Fox? Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Mr. Greaves. Good morning, um, For the record, uh, Brian Gluckstein of Sullivan and Cromwell on behalf of the FTX uh, Chapter 11 debtors before this court. Um, Mr. Greaves, um, you are not a lawyer, correct? I'm not a lawyer, that is correct, yes. And you're not offering any legal opinions in any part of your testimony, either in your declaration or in your testimony this morning, are you? I myself am not, no. Um, Mr. Greaves, you, Mr. Sims, and Mr. Cambridge are charged to act jointly as provisional liquidators with respect to FTX digital markets, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, in terms of day-to-day -day work, um, you personally are more involved in the financial analysis and digital asset issues uh, aspects of the uh, the assignment, correct? That that is correct. Um, not to the exclusion of any other area, but but I would say that they're the areas that I spend more time in than others. And, and Mr. Greaves, um, 
with respect to, as, it, well, as you sit here today, um, the current unrestricted cash position of FTX Digital Markets is approximately $1 million or so, is that correct? Uh, that's correct. And the other cash that's currently controlled by the JPLs is in four benefit of accounts, is that correct? Yes, that, that's right, or accounts where we can see that um, the activity that went on in the account looks like it may have been for the benefit of customers. And FTX Digital Markets has unpaid accrued expenses that have been incurred in connection with the work um, that you and your team are doing that exceeds the $1 million that you have on hand, correct? That is correct, yes. Um, and in fact, you estimate that amount to be somewhere in the, currently in the 5 to $10 million range of unpaid expenses, correct? Yes, that is correct. And Mr. Greaves, the only cryptocurrency that the JPLs currently control is an estimated $200,000 or so of illiquid coins that are in a single wallet, correct? That's correct, yes. And the only basis to believe that those cryptocurrency assets actually belong to FTX Digital Markets is that an employee gave you the keys to those assets and stated as much, correct? That is correct, yes. And you have not been able to independently verify that those assets belong to FTX Digital Markets? No, I have not. Uh, otherwise, the JPLs control minimal other liquid assets today, correct? That's right. Um, other assets within our estate are no longer or not currently within our control. Uh, Mr. Greaves, you, you testified this morning um, that the JPLs would, um, the consequences of the bankruptcy stay remaining in place would be that the JPLs, including yourself, would not be able to do your jobs, as you put it, correct? Yes, that's correct. With respect to, um, you also testified this morning that you don't have the power um, to take, in your view, take directions uh, from this court with respect to questions of assets of the FTX uh, group estates, correct? Yes, that's correct. Would you agree with me, sir, that this court is capable of considering and answering the same questions with respect to uh, ownership of assets and liabilities that are raised in your proposed application? I have no doubt of the um, ability or capability of the court to do that. Um, my point is just that I, I'm not allowed to seek that guidance. But if the, if the court, if this court were to deny the motion today and the automatic state stays in place, and this court were to provide answers to the questions, you would in fact have answers to the questions as to who owns which assets and liabilities, correct? I'd still be obliged to go to the Bahamas court to seek directions and get guidance on on the position, whatever whatever this court found. And you would be able to do that at a later date, armed with the findings of this court, as to those assets, same assets and liabilities, which of those of which have been determined to be assets of the Chapter 11 debtors, correct? I disagree with that. I, um, we're already hamstrung in this case um, for various reasons and haven't been able to achieve as much in the first seven months as uh, I certainly would have expected or, or what I think is commensurate with our duties. So to um, accede to further delay whilst uh, a, a court, uh, another court uh, comes to a decision when I 
do not have the power to make that decision, I, I don't think is a tenable position for the JPLs. The question was a little bit different, Mr. Greaves. Notwithstanding your stated need to move forward now, if this court were to make determinations with respect to property of the estate as between the Chapter 11 debtors and FTX digital markets, you would then be able to go, with permission of this court, to the Bahamas court and seek directions at that point, couldn't you? In theory, I could, but I don't believe that that is in keeping with the duties that I've been charged with. Have you made any requests um, to the court in the Bahamas to permit um, this court to decide the issues that are presented in the Chapter 11 debtors' adversary proceeding? I have not for fear of the consequences that I mentioned earlier because uh, we were put on notice um, by the debtors. And I think you testified in your uh, statements this morning, Mr. Greaves, but you are familiar with the adversary proceeding complaint that was filed by the Chapter 11 debtors before this court, correct? I've read it, yes. Uh, and in fact, the FTX debtors have asked this court to address the issues the JPLs raised in the adversary proceeding complaint with respect to assets and liabilities of, the, uh, of both the states, correct? Yeah, I, am, I understand that the adversary proceeding um, will need to be heard in due course if it's not dealt with otherwise, and I believe from reading it that it deals with similar or, or, or issues that, that cross over. Um, my point is a different one, that um, that's a separate proceeding here, um, and um, I still have to deal with my own court in the Bahamas and report to it and seek directions from the Bahamas court. And it's your understanding, Mr. Greaves, that irrespective of what happens with respect to um, the motion pending today, the FTX debtors adversary proceeding will proceed before this court, correct? I assume that it will, yes. And, and you have no objection to that adversary proceeding and the issues contained therein proceeding before this court, correct? Uh, no objection. Uh, the pleadings in that case speak for itself. We filed a motion to dismiss, so I, I don't know what counsel is trying to say that the issues still remain and how that's going to get resolved. We, we do have a motion to dismiss that. I'm not asking him to opine on the legal issues, Your Honor. I'm simply asking whether, from a, the pro, from the, from a process standpoint, whether Mr. Greaves, as a, as a JPL, has any objection to uh, proceedings continuing before Your Honor. Uh, you can answer the best you can. Thank you. Uh, from a, 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 a non-legal perspective, uh, Mr. Gluckstein, just going back to how you originally phrased the question, I, I don't agree with um, what's asserted in the, uh, personally, in my capacity as a JPL, do not agree with what is asserted in the adversary proceeding, but my um, non-loyally loyally understanding of that proceeding is that it will be dealt with in this court un unless it is dealt with in some other way, unless it is either dismissed or, or there's some other um, way of it being dealt with. I, I understand that to be the case. Um, one of the other things you testified about this morning, Mr. Greaves, and in your declaration um, concerns what you refer to as, as the liability side and contacting customers, as you recall that? Yes. Um, the JPLs have actually sent two notices 
um, to approximately 2.3 million FTX.com customers requesting those customers provide contact details to use your website, correct? Yes, the intention of sending that note was to reach out to FTX digital customers for the purpose of letting them know that the provisional liquidation is in train and um, requesting them to submit contact details. Uh, it's true, Mr. Greaves, correct, that the JPLs used contact information for these 2.3 million customers obtained from a file that was pulled from an employee computer, a computer in the JPL's possession. That is correct, yes. The JPLs did not do anything to vet that list as to whether those names on it were customers of FTX Digital Markets before reaching out to those 2.3 million people in January of 2023, correct? The vetting that we carried out was to look at the file. Um, it, it was marked as a list of um, customers. It was on the machine of an FD, FDX Digital employee. Um, and in discussions with employees, um, remaining employees, it, it, it seemed to us that it was the best record that we have, or had, um, but I believe it's still the best record that we have of um, potential creditors of FTX Digital. And the duty that we have is to reach out to potential creditors. Uh, and in all circumstances, um, being starved of other data, which I firmly believe belongs to the estate of FTX Digital, um, we did indeed take the decision to proceed to reach out per our duties to contact potential creditors. But in fact, Mr. Greaves, you don't have information to know one way or the other whether any employee from whose uh, that file was extracted was an employee solely of FTX Digital Markets or is an employee of FTX Digital Markets and other entities in the FTX group, correct? I have some idea. I, um, th there are certain employees I'm aware of uh, who were double or triple hatted. They had roles with one or more entity. Um, there were other employees who, from the payroll records I can see, were only ever employed by FTX Digital. And I suppose the largest category of the latter would be those hired into the group for the first time after the creation of digital, of FTX Digital, in the Bahamas. I personally think it would be very unlikely that they would have been previously employed by other FTX group companies and, and highly unlikely that they were also employees of other group companies. Did you, uh, from who, whose computer was this list obtained? I, I don't recall um, sitting here which, uh, which of the employees it was on. Do you know whether you did an analysis to determine definitively whether the employee's uh, machine from whose that file was extracted was an employee of FTX Digital Markets? Yes. Um, I, I, I think the way we looked at, from memory, the way we looked at the machines in our possession, uh, and just by way of background, there are a number of um, laptops and desktops um, in the office site um, when we took over. Um, we w were careful to divide them up in between uh, employees of FTX Digital and, as far as we were aware, non-employees. And there were indeed um, computers for employees of other group companies in, um, to the, use the terminology of these proceedings, in different silos, um, not actually in the FTX.com silo. 
As you sit here today, Mr. Cruz, you do not know whether anyone on the, of the 2.3 million people on the list to whom you sent creditors is in fact a creditor, uh, that you sent notices is in fact a creditor of FTS Digital Markets, correct? And that's precisely one of the questions I want to ask the Bahamas Court. I, I need help to understand that. I have reason to believe that they are likely to be FTX digital creditors, but I need help in deciding that. Okay, but before getting that answer, you have put two mailings out to 2.3 million people um, suggesting that they might be creditors of FTX digital markets, correct? That's right, in accordance with my duties. And to date, there have been approximately 46,000 individuals who have registered on your website, is that correct? That might be slightly out of date, but yes, I think 40, 45, 50,000 so far. You testified um, this morning uh, that, and in your declaration that, in your view, um, it is likely, I believe is the term you used this morning, um, that there were uh, cash and digital assets, potentially other assets, in the estate of FTX Digital Markets, correct? That's correct. You also testified that um, you believe that customers have moved or migrated uh, prior to filing for liquidation from FTX trading to FTX digital markets, correct? That's right. And you've reached that conclusion uh, based on five-page document called a migration plan that's attached, that was attached to your declaration, interviews with a handful of employees, and publicly available announcements, correct? There's certainly three of the um, pieces of evidence or factors that help me form the view um, that you set up a little while ago. Okay, so other than those three pieces, have, what, what other pieces of evidence have you identified and reviewed that allow you to testify that it is likely that customers move to digital? I, uh, this may not be exhaustive, but let me let, let me try and tr try to keep it brief. Um, if I if I perhaps use as a crutch the the chronology, um, FTEC Digital was set up in July of 2021. Um, it began to uh, both hire new employees and um, take transfers of existing group employees onto its payroll, um, based in the Bahamas. Um, in September 2021, it was licensed by the Securities Commission of the Bahamas. Um, and I understand the um, purpose of the license was allowed to allow it to uh, provide services and op operate the international exchange. Uh, I understand that the migration plan was part of that application, um, looking at the date of it. Um, uh, I'll come back to the migration plan in, in a moment. Um, by November 2021, bank accounts were opened in the name of FTX Digital. Um, that continued through till, I think, January. There were a number of accounts, both in the US and overseas, 
in a number of denominations. Um, and the piece of hard evidence that we do have, we're denuded of, of, of full details of, of the platform, but we do have, uh, we've put together the pieces of the puzzle to look at bank statements for the accounts that I've just spoken to. Um, and they indicate um, payment flows from customers, um, many, many, many transactions, you know, perhaps millions of transactions in the period from January, or certainly the intense period January uh, 22 through to November when FTX Digital failed. Um, and in aggregate, those uh, customer flows, receipts and payments, look to be in the order of 13 billion um, US dollars. Um, so bank statement evidence um, I, I, would in, I would include as well. Um, Mr. Gluckstein referred to uh, conversations with, with employees. Uh, again, many of the employees had left by the time um, we were appointed, uh, but some fairly key ones remained. The um, then co-CEO and COO um, were, were still available to us. It's, I'm not referring to Mr. Bankman-Fried. Um, and she was able to um, give a view on um, migration, um, uh, migration of, of customers um, between FTX Trading and, um, and FTX Digital, and also to uh, point out that um, a KYC exercise, uh, Know Your Customer exercise, was carried out per the migration plan. Mr. Gluckstein says the migration plan is a fairly short document, five pages, but it refers to uh, a gap analysis of the KYC requirements needed to comply with the with the license uh, granted in the Bahamas. And uh, uh, I understand that there was uh, a lot of activity uh, in um, during 2022 to um, contact customers, let them know. Uh, of the intention to migrate their contracts from trading to digital uh, and for the purposes of that to seek additional um, evidence from a KYC perspective. Uh, and, and the reason for that uh, is that the prior requirements were less onerous. So, so before the Bahamian license FTX was required to have evidence on file of, um, for, for institutional customers of the details of ultimate benef beneficial ownership of 25% and above. The requirement um, for the Bahamas license was 10% and above. Um, so, so there was a, a, a telephone um, campaign, I believe with messages as well, but we don't have access to those, to reach out to customers to achieve that and put the the, the supplemental KYC information on file. I fear that I've uh, perhaps not exhausted uh, the, the signposts uh, that lead me to believe that there's a question to be answered on migration. Um, the, 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 but, uh, but I will stop other than <coughs> just mentioning one more, which is um, I, I'm not a lawyer, but um, the terms of service dated 13 May 2022 also make it very clear um, to a, a layman's um, reading and understanding that the majority of the services uh, were to be provided by FTX Digital from that date. Um, and it's our understanding, um, 
not least uh, from um, evidence provided by the debtors that those terms of service were posted on the website and it would, would have been publicly available um, to customers and the world at large. Um, and indeed, when customers, uh, after the new terms of service, wired funds to the platform, the international platform, uh, it's my understanding that they uh, saw a pop-up on their screen that, uh, that, that let them know that they were no longer sending money to an Alameda affiliate, uh, but would actually be sending funds to an account in the name of FTS Digital. And to my mind, all of those things um, lead me to think I need to go and uh, get some help from the court um, and perhaps other, other, other experts in, um, to determine what that all means. Mr. Greaves, you, everything you just walked through, you don't have documentation showing a customer ever saw a pop-up when they deposited money, correct? I have some evidence of that, but I, um, the, uh, the place where I want to look for it, the um, debtors have denied us access. You, you have not, you are not aware, as contemplated by the migration plan, of FTX Digital Markets reporting to the Securities Commission of the Bahamas any number of customers that have been migrated uh, from FTX trading to FTX Digital, correct? I do not have confirmation of that, no. As you sit here today, you do not know whether any customer actually migrated from FTX trading to FTX digital markets, correct? As I sit here today, um, my strong personal and professional view is that there's a body of evidence that suggests they did. Um, I'd like, if it's possible, to see more evidence. Um, and if that isn't possible, to seek directions from the Bahamas court uh, on where the migration happened. And if this court answers the questions posed in the adversary proceeding with respect to which customers, if any, are customers of FTX, of the XTX debtors, or FTX digital markets, you will have that answer, correct? I, I'm, not, I'm not asking this court to do anything or not do anything. Um, and I'm not trying to prevent the debtors from making any application in this court. Um, we're represented here, we're in the Chapter 15 proceedings. All, all I'm saying is, um, unless the Bahamas Court instructs me otherwise, I do not have discretion to not go to the Bahamas Court. If this court, uh, Mr. Greaves, um, leaves the automatic stay in place, you will have fulfilled your duties because you asked to go to the Bahamas Court, correct? I believe my duty is to go to the Bahamas court and um, as I say, whilst um, we're, we're supervised and under court guidance, um, in my experience courts including the Bahamas courts will um, expect uh, office holders to use their tenacity and their professional experience to get as far as they can. Um, I think that's the situation we're in uh, and I personally would like comfort from the court that appointed me. Um, that I'm not falling foul of any of my duties. 
if this court were to rule that it was going to determine the issue set forth in the adversary proceeding prior to any modification of the stay, you will have done your job in discharge of your duties, correct? That may be very helpful if that happened, but I'd still have to go to the Bahamas court. I'm personally just failing to see how I can not seek directions from the Bahamas court, and that's the question I'm trying to ask. Thank you. No further questions, Your Honor. Thank you. Any other cross? Yes, Your Honor. Ken Pasquale from Paul Hastings for the Official Creditors Committee. Good morning, Mr. Grease. Good morning, Mr. Pasquale. Mr. Grease, you've said a number of different times in your testimony so far that the application is to seek direction from the Bahamas court, correct? Correct. And that there are certain questions you want to raise with the Bahamas court, correct? Yes, that's right. But isn't it correct that what you really want to do in the Bahamas court is to commence litigation to answer those questions? Isn't that right? I wouldn't agree with that characterization, no. That could potentially be a consequence of the application, but I don't know. And certainly of the, perhaps even those in the building, I'm the least qualified from a legal perspective to form a view on that. Doesn't the application itself raise? If you would, you have it as part of your declaration. Make sure I reference the right exhibit. It's exhibit A1 to your declaration. There is a section of the proposed application that speaks to appointment of representative creditors. Are you aware of that? I want you to give me a copy. Oh, I assumed you had one. Thank you. I believe I recall it, but I think it would be prudent for me to re-familiarize myself. Apologies, Your Honor. Happy to look at your copy if it helps. Mine is marked up. Oh. Sir. Thank you. Thank you. Is this also exhibit 8 in the joint exhibit? I don't think it is, Your Honor. I think that's just a summons. No, I think it is, Your Honor. Our binder doesn't have it numbered, but it is. It looks like it's joint exhibit 8. I've got it. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. I just didn't get it. Mr. Grease, I'm looking at your declaration just to be consistent. It's exhibit A1. Is that the application that you proposed to submit to the Bahamian Court? Mr. Pasquale, I apologize. In the bundle I've got, yes, I apologize. It is. I have it. A1 is the application. 
You do have. Okay. Apologies. And let me ask you to turn to page 27 of that application. Okay, so it's not joint exhibit eight because there's no. It is not, Your Honor. Joint, joint exhibit, exhibit eight, eight just, just has the summons. Yeah. So I, I believe that was my confusion, Your Honor. Is am I referring to page 27 of the the, the affidavit supporting the summons? Correct. Thank you. I'm almost there. So, Your Honor, to be clear, I don't know if you have it in front of you. There's Exhibit A2 is the fifth affidavit in support of application. It's Exhibit A2 to Mr. Green's declaration. Your Honor, not to complicate matters further here, if I may, though, that document is attached to Mr. Green's declaration. But that proposed affidavit is not in evidence of this hearing, because it is not of evidentiary value and there was no dispute about that. So I think that is why you only have the summons, which states the claims to be brought. That was moved into evidence this morning as part of the joint exhibit list. But that affidavit is not in evidence of this hearing. I assume it's being used for impeachment purposes. It is, Your Honor. Try to ask a couple of questions. I am not seeking to put the document into evidence. Thank you, Mr. Glexley. Thank you, Your Honor. So I think we're together, Mr. Greaves. You're on page 27, section 16. I am. It says appointment of representative creditors. Yes. Does that section propose various litigation to answer certain of the questions that you propose to raise with the Bahamian court? I'll just read it again and remind myself. Mr. Pasquale, I've read down to the end of 114. My understanding of this section is that it's describing potential steps once the application is made to the Bahamas court. And as has been established, I shouldn't talk to how proceedings run in the Bahamas court. It's not my area of specialism. But I understand that it's likely that such matters would be – the Bahamas court would be assisted in its understanding of these matters and in giving directions by seeking to hear the position of creditors or customers. That's my understanding of this section. And those creditors have not yet appeared in the Bahamian case, have they? Not in the sense that I understand it. I don't believe that creditors – I can't be certain, but my recollection is that creditors have not appeared in the Bahamas case. And you understand – or do you understand, Mr. Greaves, that my client, the official committee of unsecured creditors in these debtors' Chapter 11 cases, represent the interests of, among others, all of the customers of the international exchange? 
I do understand that to be uh, the position of the UCC. Thank you. No further questions. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Greaves. I'm Good. Jeff Sabin from Venable LLP, who represents a group of ad hoc international customers who filed a statement in partial support of your motion, and I'll be very brief because I have three questions. First, do you believe it is within your duties to negotiate a protocol or other arrangements for the Bahamas court and or this court to decide the non-US law customer issues as you define them? in your draft application? My um, understanding or belief is that that would be a matter for the, the courts, uh, the, the court or courts. I, I could certainly imagine that um, that would require input from the JPLs. If this court were to decide to order or to suggest a procedure for a joint hearing of this court and the Bahamas court to adjudicate those non-US customer issues, would you be in favor? I would be guided by the court that appointed me. Um, but if I take the spirit of the question, I'm interested in finding the answers. Um, so would like to make the application to the Bahamas court. And I, I, I don't I don't think I then get to influence how the, the two courts um, decide to work together. Finally, would, if that were to happen, right, a suggestion of a joint hearing, would that meet your duties as you understand them? If the Bahamas court um, were able to confirm um, that that met our duties uh, or satisfied um, the threshold for us to carry out our duties, um, then we could live with that. Thank you, sir. Anyone else, Mr. Cross, before I go back for redirect? Okay, redirect. Thank you, Your Honor. Just, just briefly, Mr. Greaves. Mr. Gluckstein asked you some questions concerning a communication that the JPL sent to the 2.3 million customers identified on the customer list. Uh, could you just tell us what was the purpose of that communication? Uh, yes. Um, simply to uh, do our best with the tools we had available to satisfy the duty of uh, identifying and contacting our creditors. Um, it was the only uh, list we had available at the time. As was mentioned, that uh, the, the two letters that have gone so far explain the nature of our appointment, um, explained what we were not appointed over, i.e. making it very clear of the existence of the 134 um, debtor proceedings uh, before this court, and um, inviting those who may believe that they're creditors of FTX Digital and I, I've had people reaching out to me, you know, customers reaching out, um, asserting that they are. Um, so the purpose was to invite them to log their basic contact details on, on our case website. Um, I believe at the moment it's name, address, and, and, and email. And that was the purpose of the, of the contact. Are 
Uh, communications such as this unusual steps for you to take in your role as a liquidator? No, it's primary duty uh, 101. If if I was looking after an entity with four or five creditors, I, I might not put up a, a website. Um, in this case, the evidence suggests that the number is far, far greater than that. Um, so reaching out electronically um, and having uh, a basic claims website with information and frequent, frequently asked questions would be, uh, would be very nice. Have the JPLs uh, ever represented to anyone that they have any authority to act on behalf of the U.S. Chapter 11 debtors? I certainly have not, and I'm not aware that the, the, any of the JPLs have. And in the communications that you sent to customers, have you taken any steps to explain that you do not have authority to act and are not acting on behalf of any of the U.S. Chapter 11 debtors? Yes, we have. I, I believe that we've made that as, as clear as possible. And uh, where counterparties, uh, uh, creditors, or even debtors have reached out to us, um, I mean debtors with a small d, um, uh, and, and it's clear or reasonably clear to me that they should be reaching out to the debtors. I've passed on the contact details and explained why um, I can't deal with their, with their query. Um, now, shifting topics, Mr. Gluckstein asked you about the unrestricted cash position of the JPLs. Do you remember that? I, I remember, yes. Okay, and I think you told him that with regard to cash that wasn't um, held for the benefit of customers or arguably held for the benefit of customers, your current balance was less than a million dollars? Yes, I, I don't know the exact number, but I think that would be, um, you know, a few, a few hundred thousand dollars left. Uh, will it be possible for the um, JPLs to take any steps to fund uh, their efforts on behalf of the uh, administration, the provisional liquidation, given that cash situation? Um, only with permission of the Bahamas Court. And, and what would you need permission from the Bahamas Court to do in order to accomplish that? I can um, think of two, um, two scenarios. Um, the, 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 the order appointing us and the um, statutory duties and powers laid out um, in the Act in the Bahamas basically divides up powers that the JPLs have uh, between those that they can carry carry out themselves and those uh, for which they need leave or, or sanction or approval of the court. And in that latter bucket, I can think of um, the, the, within the power of the JPLs to make such an application would be to um, seek permission to borrow funds. Um, that would be permissible with sanction of the Bahamas court. Um, and it would also excuse me, it would also uh, be possible to my mind to make an application to the Bahamas Court um, for a determination on whether the funds thought possibly or likely to be held in trust for customers were indeed trust funds um, or, or, or otherwise were generally available um, to carry out the estate. And I would say that second one is a core plank of the application that we're actually making. And if you were prevented from the automatic stay from making that application, what, if any, consequences would there be um, for the uh, joint provisional liquidation? Well, 
I, you know, other, I'm, I'm not going to stop um, trying to do my job and, and, and fielding uh, queries, which we still receive, uh, you know, hundreds each month. Uh, but in terms of substantively moving this forward, uh, we would not be able to carry our out our duties and not be able to, never mind complete the provisional liquidation, we, we wouldn't even be able to, to do our basic roles. So if you were to follow the course that Mr. Gluckstein suggested and not make any applications to the Bahamian court um, while you litigate with the debtors for however long, uh, what would be the impact on the uh, JPL's cash position as that occurs? Well, it's, uh, we've already got uh, we've already committed expenditure beyond uh, the funds that we have, so um, we'd be in a an impossible situation. Thank you. There are no further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cruz. You may step down. Our next witness is our um, foreign law expert, uh, Meta McMillan Hughes KC. Uh, she submitted a declaration at docket number 1193. My understanding from the debtors is they do not intend to cross her, therefore we were not going to do a direct and would stand on the declaration. She is in court and available to answer any questions that the court or any other party may have. Um, but unless you have any questions, I would just offer her declaration at this time. Okay. Any objection? No objection. No objection. Declaration is admitted without objection. I don't have any questions. Does anyone else wish to ask the witness any questions? Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. So Thank that you. completes the evidentiary pro, uh, portion of the JPL's case, and so at this time we would rest. Thank you. Good morning again, Your Honor. Uh, Brian Gluckstein of Sullivan and Cromwell for the debtors. As uh, Mr. Zakia. Uh, preview this morning. The debtors have uh, one witness this morning, and we would like to call Mr. Edward Mosley to stand. Mr. Mosley, please come forward, take the stand, and remain standing. Please raise your right hand. Please state your full name and spell your last name for the court record, please. Edgar William Mosley, second. Do you affirm that you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the best of your knowledge and abilities? I do. You may be seated, Your Honor. Right. Your Honor, may I approach the witness who handed him a copy of his declaration? Yes. <coughs> Does Your Honor need a copy? No. Uh, is it? Were these included in the joint exhibit? Uh, they were numbered, Your Honor. It's uh, numbered as joint exhibit number 39. Okay. I have them. Good morning, Mr. Mosley. Good morning. Um, is the declaration that's in front of you marked as um, ex a joint exhibit number 39, the declaration you submitted uh, to this court in connection with um, your testimony this morning? Yes, it is. Um, Your Honor, Mr. Mosley's declaration was filed at docket uh, 1411, uh, and we would ask that it be moved into evidence. Any objection? No objection. Submitted without objection. 
Mr. Mosley, can you give uh, the court a brief background uh, of your uh, experience as a restructuring professional? Sure. Uh, I have over 20 years of experience um, doing restructurings, corporate side, mostly on the company side. Um, most of the time they're in, in Chapter 11 proceedings of some sort, but I do do some out of court. Um, I've worked at Alvarez and Marsal since 2008 um, and in general do uh, some of our larger, more complex cases. Can you please uh, describe for the court um, your current responsibilities at Alvarez and Marcel with respect to the Chapter 11 debtors? Sure. I oversee a team of professionals who uh, I organize into various work streams. Uh, those work streams um, are, you know, wide. We do um, cash. Um, so part of the, the job there is to um, not only secure, but also to project cash balances for the various debtors. Um, in addition, we have a crypto team who are charged with identifying and securing the crypto and digital assets of the estate. Um, that's more complicated than it seems because as part of the debtor's operations pre-petition, there were balances held at third-party exchanges, so we're in the midst of trying to get all those digital assets back. In addition, uh, there's a claims process that I oversee where we are setting up a um, claims portal um, and working with the claims agent to uh, on a, on a process of how we will take and um, and use the information as part of the, the bar date for the claims of the various entities. Um, another big work stream for us right now is that the plan uh, formation structure um, and the financial analysis around uh, various plan structures. Um, th there are, I think we have a multitude of, of work streams, but those are the, the big ones that I think are uh, relevant to the question. And are you, are you the lead professional at Alvarez and Marcel on all of those work streams for the Chapter 11 debtors? Correct. I, I lead the entire team. Um, Mr. Mosley, if you could just briefly look at um, your declaration that's in front of you at paragraph 20. I'm there. Um, you have a statement there uh, with respect to uh, that states, quote, the debtors are not aware of any customers of FTXDM who are not also creditors of FTX trading or other debtors. See that? I do. And that, that's your testimony as set forth in your declaration of paragraph 20, correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, Mr. Mosley, could you please um, explain for the court in a bit more detail um, what you are uh, saying in that statement, intending in that statement? No problem. Um, in the case of the international or dot-com exchange, that set of customer claims um, is is the one in question. And uh, the, the, the JPL um, have said that some portion of 
of that exchange um, is a is their customer, um, with the remainder uh, being with the the, the debtors at uh, FTX Trading. Um, <clears throat> in in fulfilling our duties, when we think about if one or more customers of the of the dot com exchange were indeed digital markets customers. Um, I don't think that the U.S. debtors would be able to say that uh, the, a, a migration of that customer uh, did not allow that customer to, to make a claim with trading. Um, I say that because, you know, first and foremost, the terms of service, the counterparty is, is FTX trading, which is a debtor. And further, uh, I do believe that all of the customers have or will have uh, the ability to, to make a, a fraud claim against the debtors. Um, and that, that uh, claim would go against FTX trading. I don't think that somehow migrating a customer to digital markets would absolve the debtors of that claim. So thus, in my opinion, any claims brought uh, by customers against digital markets, they, that, those same customers would have a claim against our debtors. Mr. Mosley, if you could um, turn to paragraph 21 of your declaration. I'm there. You discuss in paragraph 21 of your declaration uh, prejudice to the debtors if the proceedings in the Bahamas court were to proceed. Is that right? Yes. What types of prejudices do you believe the debtors will suffer if the stay is lifted and the application is filed in the Bahamas court? I think of the types of prejudices in, in sort of three buckets. Um, there's the additional costs that would be incurred uh, by the estate uh, for having um, a duplicative um, litigation on the same topics. I think of the um, confusion um, to our claims process and, and our overall plan process that would be um, that that would occur, and uh, the final would be a potential delay in our case. I think there's potential to have um, you know our, our our process delayed in some way. With respect to the cost aspect of um the, 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 the prejudice to the debtors. Um, can you elaborate some for the court on, on, on what you mean and the types of increased costs you're contemplating? So the, the, the process of, of having a litigation in the Bahamas on the, the same sort of issues that are in the adversarial proceedings would require um, or could require the, the debtors to additional legal counsel down in, in the Bahamas uh, and for whatever sort of local law and rules that are there. All of the professionals that are currently uh, in our case would need to come up to speed on, on how to, um, what their duties are and how they would conduct themselves in the in those um, Bahamian proceedings. Um, so all of that additional work would need to happen. Uh, there would be duplicative cases. There'll be more hearings that 
folks would have to travel for. Um, and just in general, there would be additional expert testimony required. I don't know if the requirements there are different, but um, I'm told that there are you know, uh, additional expert witnesses needed. Um, and that isn't just, um, just for the debtors. You know, the, all of the stakeholders would need to, to, to be present. UCC, ad hoc committee, any other stakeholders um, could be required to, to go down there and, and um, make sure that they're, they're properly heard in that case. Um, you mentioned a creditor confusion uh, as, as, as prejudice. Can, can you explain to the court a little bit more about what you have in mind in, in your opinion would uh, be uh, uh, creditor confusion? Sure. Uh, some portion of the creditors uh, that are involved in our case will be um, confused as to which case they need to appear, place a claim in, participate in. Um, some may decide to, to be to appear in both. Um, some may choose one or the other and may be incorrect in, in which one they need to be involved in. Um, having two, two uh, claims portals up at the same time for the same population of creditors, the ones in question being anyone in the dot-com exchange of FTX.com, is clearly confusing um, for someone who is not doing this for a living. Uh, there will be a set of uh, customers who have no problem with that, but I'm sure there's a set of customers who, who will be confused in some way. Uh, with respect to, I think the third thing you mentioned, Mr. Mosley, was potential for delay. Um, what, do you, what is, in your opinion, the potential delay caused by duplicative proceedings in Bahamas? Uh, it's a potential. I'm not saying that it's you know, required delay, but there could be a delay in our plan process if we need to wait until uh, the Bahamian court hears uh, the, the litigation on that issue and then we'd have to put it in front of your honor as well. Um, and every, every delay though in this case is expensive. There's a lot of professionals involved um, and the longer the process takes, the more it costs. And so the, the debtors are very focused on trying to shorten the amount of time. Any potential delay is, is one that we take seriously. Mr. Mosley, um, looking again at paragraph 21 of your declaration, um, there are some bullet points there, um, including the first bullet point that has a description of attempts to cloud title uh, with respect to assets. Can you um, give the court an example of what you're referring to in that first bullet point in paragraph 21 of your declaration? Certainly. This $7.7 billion that's been referenced by the JPL in a few places, um, most notably in its uh, interim report, um, in, in my opinion is um, misleading. I, I'm not saying that the number is incorrect. I'm saying it is choosing to choosing to only show one side of the ledger. Um, 
in this case, these are amounts transferred from digital markets to a debtor. It ignores the fact that there are corresponding amounts from debtors to digital markets. It's just taking a gross number and not giving the reader the benefit of the net amount. In fact, it's my opinion that if you totaled up the customers' amounts that were transferred out, the amounts to FTX Trading and the amounts to Alameda, and you compared that to the amounts coming in to digital markets, there was a net inflow into digital markets. But at the very least, the amounts sent out of the $7.7 billion are dwarfed by the amounts required for the customer withdrawals that the JPL purports are their customers. So amounts sent out to Alameda or Trading that were then sent on to customers, I don't view that as amounts due to digital markets. And in the interim report where this number sits, it sits in the receivables section. It intimates that digital markets is owed $7.7 billion from the debtors, and I feel that's misleading. And they've used that number in lots of places. Once again, I don't think that it's incorrect. I see those transfers. I think it's incomplete and purposely incomplete. So that's what I'm talking about when I say clouding title to the assets. They're saying that somehow digital markets is entitled to the assets of the debtors. Thank you, Mr. Mosley. No further questions. Thank you. Anyone else want a question in support? No, Your Honor. Thank you. Cross? Mr. Mosley, good morning. Good morning. My name is Jason Zakin, one of the lawyers from JPLs. I'm going to ask you a couple questions if that's okay. Yes, sir. So first of all, I'd like to talk to you about the terms of service that you referred to on your direct examination. There were various different terms of service posted to the FTX.com website at various times. Is that correct? Yes, sir. So the first ones that we are aware of are what I believe you referred to as the 2019 terms of service? Yes, sir. And when were those posted to the FTX.com website? In 2019. And by whom were those terms of service posted to the FTX.com website? If you're saying who the counterparty is who posted it, I mean, it's FTX Trading. That's the counterparty. If you're asking whether or not it's who is the actual person who mechanically put it onto the website, I don't know who it was. Okay. So if I understand correctly, someone acting on behalf of FTX, but the records of the company don't indicate which individual posted the 2019 terms of service to the FTX.com website in 2019, right? Correct. There's just a record of it being put onto the website. And at the time that that happened, the CEO of FTX was Sam Bankman-Feldfried? Correct. Okay. 
And other than the posting to the website, the records of the company don't indicate any separate step or separate notice was given to customers of the 2019 terms of service, correct? Correct. Now, at some point, the 2019 terms of service were replaced by later terms of service conveniently referred to as the 2020 terms of service. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, and those were posted to the FTX.com website in 2020? Correct. And the records of the company are not sufficient for you to be able to know which individual posted the 2020 terms of service to the FTX.com website, right? Correct. At the time that that happened in 2020, the CEO of FTX was Sam Bankman-Fried, right? Correct. Now, it's your understanding that when the 2020 terms of service were posted to the 2000, sorry, to the FTX.com website, those terms of service replaced the 2019 terms of service? Yes. And so the relationship between FTX and its customers was governed by the 2019 terms of service from the time that was posted until the 2020 terms of service were posted, right? I'm not a lawyer, but yes, from a business person's perspective, yes. Okay. Hold on one second. And you talk about this in your declaration, right? Yes, sir. And in fact, in paragraph 10 of your declaration, you say the relationship between the customers and FTX.com trading platform were governed by the 2019 and 2020 terms of service, right? Correct. I think paragraph 10 speaks for itself. Okay. And you've described for us the process by which those two terms of service were posted to the website and disclosed to customers, right? Yes. Now, I'd like to ask about the 2022 terms of service. Do you, the 2022 terms of service are joint exhibit 11. You don't have a copy of that with you, do you, sir? No, I do not, but I'm familiar with the 2022 terms of service. Okay. May I approach the witness, Your Honor? Yes. Sir, I've handed you what's been marked and admitted as joint exhibit 11. Is that the 2022 terms of service? It appears to be, yes. And these terms of service are dated May 13th, 2022 at the top of page one? They are. And is that the date on or about which these terms of service were posted to the FTX.com website? On or about, yes. And am I correct that just like with the 2019 and 2020 terms of service, the records of the company are not sufficient for you to be able to 
uh, determine which individual posted those terms of service to the website. Correct. Um, now, in par and you addressed this in paragraph 13 of your declaration, right? Yes, I'm, I'm referring to Exhibit H, but it's that, that's the 2022 terms of service in my declaration. Correct. Okay. And what you say in paragraph 13 of your declaration is, in May 2022, the records indicate that Mr. Bankman Freed and or others acting in his direction introduced new terms of service to the FTX.com customers by posting them to the FTX.com website. Do you see that? Yes. Okay. And uh, again, I think you just told me you don't actually know which person at FTX posted these to the website. Yeah, I'm referring to Mr. Bankman Free because he's the CEO of, of FTX. Okay, so the basis for your statement in paragraph 13 of your declaration with regard to the 2022 terms of service were that at the time, Mr. Bankman Free was the CEO of FTX, and so whoever did it must have been working, um, in your view, uh, at his direction. I'm, I'm saying that I'm using Mr. Bankman Freed in that sentence because he, in his capacity as CEO, he was directed, uh, you know, the operations of FTX. So he, it's, it's his decision to put that on the website. Oh, just as he was the CEO directing the operations of FTX uh, with respect to the 2019 and the 2020 terms of service, at, sorry, at the times that those were posted to the website. Correct. And in fact, sir, uh, as far as the records of the company uh, indicate, and as far as you are aware, the process, the mechanical process by which the 2019, 2020, and 2022 terms of service were loaded to the website is the same. Mechanically, I think it's the same. And with respect to the notice given to customers or the lack of separate notice given to customers of the posting of the terms of service, that's the same with regard to the 2019, 2020, and 2022 terms of service, right? No difference. I, I don't know. I think it's a legal determination what's required for. Well, I wasn't asking you about what was required. I was just asking whatever was I, given was the same for all three. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't finished, sorry. Um, I was saying I don't know the, I'm not a, a lawyer, so I don't have the legal determination of what's required, but I think that mechanically the same notice was given for all three. Now, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about Joint Exhibit 11, which is the 2022 Terms of Service. I think you told us on your direct testimony that FTX trading was the counterparty with the customers with respect to the Terms of Service. Did I hear you correctly? Yes, in paragraph one. You know, FTX trading is the counterparty to the customer. Okay, and you're referring to paragraph one of G, uh, Joint Exhibit 11, which says, the following terms and condition of service, together with any documents expressly incorporated herein, constitute an agreement between you and FTX trading, a company incorporated and registered in Antigua and Barbudo, or a service provider in respect of a specified service, that's what you're referring to? Yes. Okay. So this is a, a agreement between customers and either FTX trading or a service provider 
um, to the extent there are service providers that will be providing specified services, right? Correct. FTX Trading is the, the only name in that, though. And, but I agree. It does say all service providers. Right. And you're not a lawyer, and I'm not asking you for any legal opinions as to the legal impact of that, but, but that's what this provision says. Yes. Okay. And if we look on the next page, Section 1.3 of the 2022 Terms of Service, which is helpfully bolded with the words important, that provision says you acknowledge and agree that any specified service referred to in a service schedule shall be provided to you by the service provider specified in that service schedule. In such case, the specified service shall be provided to you on and subject to the terms with reference in these general terms to FTX trading being read as a reference to the service provider. Is that correct? That's what it says, yes. Okay. And am I correct, sir, that in the service schedules which are attached to the 2022 Terms of Service, which are Joint Exhibit 11, FTX Digital Markets is a specified service provider? They are one of the service providers, yes. So, for example, if we look at Schedule 2, Service Schedule, which is the page 32 of 63 on the court file copy. Do you have that, sir? Yep. FTX Digital Markets Limited is identified as a service provider in Schedule 2? I see that, yes. Okay. And in Schedule 3, which is on the court file page 33 of 63, in that service schedule, FTX Digital Markets is identified as a service provider, right? I see that, yes. And if we look at Schedule 4, which is page 35 of 63, FTX Digital Markets is identified as a service provider. See that? Yes. And if we look at Schedule 5, which is, well, they're all in order, so I'm sort of following along. FTX Digital Markets Limited is identified as a service provider, right? Yes. And if we look at Schedule 6, FTX Digital Markets is identified as a service provider? Correct. And if we look at Schedule 7, FTX Digital Markets is identified as a service provider? I see that, yes. Okay. So at least with respect to the 2022 Terms of Service, with respect to the specified services identified by each of the, sorry, with respect to the services addressed by each of the schedules that we just reviewed that provide that FTX Digital Markets will be the service provider, these Terms of Service are an agreement between the customer and FTX Digital Markets, right? I don't, that's a legal determination. I think there's more that goes into it. I'm not a lawyer, though, so I can't really tell you what the legal determination is. I am happy to agree with you when you point to the document and say that Schedule 1 through 6 or 7 say Digital Markets, but I don't, I think on our side of the house, when we say whether or not who's the counterparty, we have not made the legal determination that FTX Digital Markets is the counterparty of this agreement. Fair enough. And you're not offering any legal opinion, and I didn't mean to ask you for one. Would it be fair to say that from your perspective, that's a legal question that you'd like to have the answer to? 
That's a legal question for sure. Um, and it, it, it would, uh, the determination of that question uh, affects a lot of parts of the, the case. So it's a question that some court will need to answer. Yes, sir. Okay. And if we look, last question about this exhibit, um, it's section 38.11 of Joint Exhibit 11, which is the um, section 38.11 of the documents on page 28 of 63. I see it. Okay. The governing law of the 2022 terms of service is English law, correct? That's what it says, yes. Now, in your declaration in section B of your declaration, paragraphs 14 through 18, you yes. make you offer some testimony concerning um, the uh, efforts by the Securities Commission of the Bahamas to secure digital assets uh, at the time around the bankruptcy filing? Yes, right? sir. Uh, I just want to be clear, sir. Other than the fact that one of the JPLs, Mr. Brian Sims, was copied on one email, which you refer to as Exhibit I believe, uh, L of your declaration. You don't have any personal knowledge about what, if any, involvement the JPLs had or didn't have in anything that the Securities Commission did with regard to the securing of the digital assets, right? There's more than one, you know, set of communications, uh, but as att attachments to my declaration, we only put the, the one in there. So if you're referring to the, the attachments, I agree. I, there's only that one attachment, um, that, and that's the one which uh, Brian Sims was, um, you know, CC'd uh, the communication from, the official communication from the, the commission to Mr. Sam Bankenfried. Okay, and you, you weren't, like, you don't have any, other than things that you've seen in documents, which the court will consider whatever evidence was admitted, um, but other than that, you don't have any personal knowledge of anything Mr. Sims or anybody else did or didn't do with regard to the security of those digital assets, right? Correct. I don't have any personal knowledge of it. Okay. Now, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about prejudice, which is um, some of the testimony that you offered uh, uh, on direct examination in response to Mr. Gluckstein's question. One of the things I think you said was um, the debtors were prejudiced by the decision of the JPLs to establish a claims portal. Did uh, I understand so, that? what I said in in my my direct was what are the ways that the debtors could be prejudiced, um, and then inside here there are examples of actions of the JPL that have already affected the debtors, one of those being the claims portal. Okay, and, and the claims portal exists today, right? Yes, sir. Okay, the filing of the application, which is the subject of this motion, isn't going to create or destroy the claims portal, right? I don't know what their plans are for the okay. claims but portal. it exists independent of the application which the JPLs are seeking uh, relief from the automatic stay with respect to. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do based on the decision in front of the court today. Okay. And um, with respect to, well, is it your understanding that part of the, the, the issues that issue of this hearing is they're asking Judge Dorsey to order the debtors to, or sorry, order the JPLs to take down the claims portal? No, in front of today is just the, the lift of stay motion. I, I don't okay. Um, I'm going to direct your attention to Joint Exhibit 54, and I'll hand you a copy. May I approach your Joint Exhibit 54 is the communication which the JPL sent to customers, uh, which you referred to on your direct examination. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, give me one second. I'm looking for sure. which exhibit it is. The exhibit number is on the bottom right-hand corner. That's the joint exhibit number. I'm looking for the exhibit to my Oh, okay. Declaration. Okay, now, yes. If, if we turn, please, sir, to the second page of Joint Exhibit 54, interaction with the Chapter 11 proceedings. This communication states, the provisional liquidation process for FTX Digital is running independently of, but in parallel with, the ongoing Chapter 11 proceedings in the U.S., Customers of FTX.com who have submitted claims against the entities covered by the U.S. Chapter 11 proceedings are not prevented from registering their details via FTX Digital Claims Portal and vice versa. Do you see that? I see that. Now, one of the other areas of prejudice that I believe you identified during your direct examination was cost. Yes. Um, you haven't completed, you haven't quantified any estimate of cost of what it would cost the um, Chapter 11 debtors to litigate the application in the Bahamas, have you? I'm referring to that there are clearly a set of additional costs that all of the stakeholders uh, inside of our Chapter 11 would occur to have duplicative process in the Bahamas. I don't usually put together professional fee forecasts for other professionals, but you know I put together you know many budgets on you know professional fees in, in various cases, so I have a you know an understanding of sort of quantum of those and what we would what would the other what would be the other impacted professionals that would have to go down there so no I haven't prepared a specific schedule but I've got a uh, I have enough you know knowledge of how professional fee forecasts work to say it's it's a number okay but my question is have you done anything to quantify what that number is other than think through what the mechanics would be no I haven't put down on paper a, a forecast Okay, and if you haven't um, quantified what that number is, I assume you haven't compared whatever that number is to the total amount, uh, amount of administrative expenses that have been incurred by state professionals in the course of this Chapter 11 case. 
the purpose of me saying that it's prejudice is that it would be additional costs from my process for a duplicative set of matters that would need to be decided by a judge. So this would be on top of whatever I have in my forecast. So that's why I've said it's additional cost. I don't compare it to what the administrative burn for the whole case is. I compare it to what would it be versus my base case, which is the Chapter 11. And so it's clearly on top of because it's the same matters in our adversarial proceeding being heard somewhere else in which I have to do additional things. Could you just give me what, if you know, what are the total professional fees incurred by the debtors to date in connection with Chapter 11 cases? I don't have that offhand. It's part of the record, though. All of the fee applications are on file. You can go and add all those together. Fair to say whatever the incremental cost of the Bahamian proceedings would be would be fairly small in comparison to the total amount of costs incurred by these estates for professionals so far? Any amounts that would be in addition would come right out of the creditor's pocket. So maybe it's small in comparison to the total professional fees, but it clearly would mean something to the creditors. And you don't have any experience in legal proceedings in the Bahamas, right? No, I've never appeared in the Bahamas. And I think we established you're not a legal expert offering any legal opinions, right? I'm not a lawyer, no. So you're certainly not offering any opinions concerning the Bahamian legal process? I am not. And one of the things you talked about, which I assume is related to cost, is also delay? Yes, sir. Okay. You don't have any basis to know or opine on how long the Bahamian court would take to dispose of the issues raised in the application, right? Yeah, I referenced potential delay. I don't know how long or if. And you don't know how long it might take this court to deal with any of the overlapping issues in the Chapter 11 cases? Correct. It's required, and so it's built into our timeline. Okay. And since you don't know how long it would take in the Bahamas and you don't know how long it would take in Delaware, I assume it's fair to say you are not in any position to compare the speed with which the two different courts could address these issues, right? I am not in a position to compare the speed between the two courts, no. One of the things you addressed, sir, in paragraph 24 of your declaration deals with an April 27 letter from the Bar Council in the Bahamas to the Debtors Bahamian Council. It's Exhibit N to your declaration. N is Joint Exhibit 50. Is that correct? Exhibit N, yes. Do you have a copy of that up there with you? No. Okay. May I approach, Your Honor? Yes. Thank you. So Joint Exhibit 50, which is Exhibit N to your declaration, who is Peter Maynard? Peter Maynard 
uh, is an attorney at Bay and Devereaux Streets, I guess. Okay. Is he, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, I'm done. Sorry. Uh, is he the debtor's um, Bahamian counsel? Uh, yes. And Jason Maynard, uh, is that a lawyer uh, at Mr. Peter Maynard's firm who also represents the Chapter 11 debtors in the Bahamas? I think so. Okay. Um, and this letter was received um, by the Bahamian Bar sorry, by the debtors Bahamian lawyers from the Bahamian Bar Association on April 27, 2023? Correct. Okay. And it concerns the application to have Mr. David William Allison KC um, specially admitted uh, to appear as counsel record for the Chapter 11 debtors in the um, Bahamian proceedings, right? Correct, as sort of um, expert in Florida King's counsel type of thing, English law. Right, and this application was to have him appear uh, as uh, a lawyer uh, in the Bahamian proceedings. I'm not familiar with what exactly the the application um, did or, or didn't require. Okay, so you don't know what um, the application uh, filed by the debtors um, asked for to which this was a response? All uh, I know is that we were not allowed under that application to have um, Mr. David William Allison um, appear in the Bahamas for us for what we viewed as English law requirements that we needed. Um, and that this says that, and I'll let it speak for itself, this document. Okay. So you knew that the Bahamian proceedings concerned issues of English law, and Mr. William Allison, Allison is a, a lawyer based in the United Kingdom? I think so, yes. Okay. And the debtors wanted him to appear in some capacity in the Bahamian proceedings. Correct. And this is the response from the Bahamian bar with regard to that application, right? I think so, yes. Okay, and it says, uh, if we look at the bottom of the first paragraph, I advise that a usual requirement for special calls is canvassing all other local king's council to ascertain their expertise and availability to be retained for the necessary application. <coughs> do you see that? I do. Uh, do you know what a special call is? I, I don't know, but it's capitalized here. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what the canvassing requirements are that are referred to here? I don't know what the canvassing requirements are, no. Do you know whether the debtors complied with the canvassing requirements specified in this letter prior to making the application? All I know is that the council is not minded at this juncture to approve my firm's application for a special call. Well, you also know that they invited you to provide dates of availability to appear to make oral representations as to why he should be admitted. Do you know if the debtors ever um, took up the Bahamian Bar's uh, invitation to have that meeting? I don't know what's become of this or how far we've pushed it after this. So you don't know whether um, so you don't know whether the debtors complied with the legal requirements to have Mr. Allison admitted, right? Don't know whether that happened one way or the other. Correct. Um, and you don't know whether they took up the commission on its invitation to meet to discuss the issue, right? Correct. And as of today, you don't know whether Mr. Allison has or has not been admitted as of today, right? 
Correct, I don't know that. And, and just to be clear, if, um, well, let's look at your declaration. You say uh, in paragraph 23 that you understood that this application to be similar to a pro hoc vice motion in the United States. What is a pro hoc vice motion in the United States? It's just a request to appear um, in front of a court. Uh, do you know whether in the United States, in this court, um, a English lawyer could file a pro hoc vice motion to appear as counsel of record for the Chapter 11 debtors? Not a lawyer, no, I don't know. Don't know about that one way or the other, right? Nope, I don't know that. Sir, um, you gave some testimony concerning whether the possibility that customers may or may not have migrated from FTX trading to FTX digital markets, right? Please ask the question again. Sure. Do you recall during your direct examination speaking that one of the issues that um, is in dispute in this case is whether customers may or may not have migrated from FTX trading to FTX digital markets? Correct. Okay. Uh, I want to be clear. You have not, um, in your capacity as the financial advisor for the debtors, undertaken any effort to search the business records of the debtors um, for documents that would speak to whether or not that occurred, right? No, we've not undertaken um, an effort to, to look for documents that, that may or may not point to completion of a migration plan. Can I have one second, Your Honor? Sure. Thank you. I have no further questions. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't know if there was any other questioning of Mr. Mosley, but I'm happy to redirect. Um, Mr. Mosley. Uh, Mr. Zakir showed you what's marked as um, exhibit, joint exhibit 54, uh, the letter from the joint provisional liquidators. Do you still have that in front of you? I do. Have you reviewed this document in its entirety uh, prior to the testimony today? Yes. It, in your opinion, as a restructuring professional, would creditors receiving this type of letter uh, cause confusion as to with whom they should lodge a claim? Objection, speculation. Sustained. Back and forth opinion. Sustained. Mr. Mosley, um, Mr. Zakir showed you uh, exhibit, uh, joint exhibit 11, which was the 2022 terms of service. Do you still have that? I do. Uh, Mr. Mosley, uh, Mr. Zakia, um took you through certain schedules uh, annex to uh, the 2022 terms of service uh, where FTX digital markets uh, was referenced. Do you recall that? I do. Uh, 
do you have an understanding as to whether um, custody of cash is a specified service under the uh, 2022 terms of service? I don't think it's um, a, a separate service that's governed by one of the schedules. I think that's sort of um, core to the, the customer relationship and what we, you know, what FTX is doing with its customers. So I think it's, uh, it, it definitely does not say that FTX Digital Markets is the service provider for cash custody, if that's the question. It is, and how about with respect to custody of digital assets to cryptocurrency? Is, uh, do, are you aware of anything in that document that um, identifies um, that being a specified service or being provided by FTX Digital Markets? It does not say it's provided by FTX Digital Markets. Further questions, Ron? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mosley. You may step Your Honor, down. Sorry, could we have one second before you speak with us? I don't allow re cross. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> you may step down. Um, let's take a short recess here. We'll come back and we'll finish up, uh, try to plow through the rest of the day. So let's take a 15 minute recess. We'll come back at 11 15. <coughs>
Good morning, Your Honor. Chris Shore from White and Case on behalf of the, the JPLs. Um, there have been a lot of papers, uh, exhibits, and testimony filed on this motion, so it's hard to know what the court sees right now as the key issues uh, to be addressed. So feel free to interrupt me and, and focus me. I'm happy to do so. But I want to start by highlighting three overarching points. Well, I do have – here's my thinking at this point. Mm -hmm. From a practical standpoint, if I allow the JPLs to go to the Bahamas and proceed there, what could possibly happen? Because regardless of what the Bahama court does, I still have to make the same determination. And I have to do it on my own. Um, and the assets that we are talking about are all under the interim jurisdiction of this court. So regardless of what Bahamas decides, if they decide, yeah, it all goes to digital, it doesn't go to digital until I say it goes to digital. So what are we gaining from a practical standpoint by allowing the proceeding to go forward in two different courts on the same exact issue? Okay. I, I wanted, this is why I wanted to emphasize this point on the narrow scope of the relief and what we're actually seeking because we're not seeking to have dual proceedings. We're not seeking you to uh, to cede your jurisdiction to the other court with respect to any of these issues unless you deem it appropriate to do so. What we are asking today, and I, that the one thing that has to get done to start that process, is to file the application in the Bahamas court. That leads to another process that will require this court signing off on it and the Bahamas court signing off on it. It's either going to come in the form of one, a consensual protocol by affected parties to say, we agree, the following issue should be decided by the Bahamian court. The Bahamian court should tell Mr. Greaves whether the cash he has on hand over which he, well, the Bahamas court has jurisdiction, not you, because it's not property of the debtors, it's property of the Bahamian court, can proceed in the Bahamas. The issue of whether or not the terms of service should be voided as a fraudulent conveyance will occur in this court. We'll work out a consensual process, and Your Honor will either agree with it or not and say, okay, we get it. This goes here, this goes here, here are the procedures. That's one way of handling it. Another way of handling it is to just have the two courts talk to each other, and that has happened in the past. We have a basket of issues. The parties can't seem to get out of their own way to discuss whether any of this should occur anywhere else. And we're going to tell you, I, uh, the Chapter 11 uh, court, am going to decide all issues relating to Chapter 5. I'm going to deal with all issues relating to the terms of service as they apply to the accounts of the debtors, etc. We could do it that way. We could do a hybrid where the parties get as far as possible along the lines of a protocol that allows these two courts to exercise their jurisdiction without running afoul of each other's stay, and then come to the court with a set of procedures and say, we can't decide these four issues. The debtors take this position, the JPLs take this position, the UCC takes that position, and it's going to need to be sorted out. Or we get to a set of courts digging in. You say, I am going to handle all issues with respect to all cash around the world, and the Bahamian courts stand down, 
And the Bahamian court would, in a normal setting where we've seen this happen between courts, say, what are you talking about? I'm going to tell my debtor what to do. And we get into a jurisdictional mess that's a bad day for everybody. You heard these issues that are framed by the application. Is this property of an estate? Or is, are these assets held in trust? Were the customers who would have rights under either US law or Bahamian law with respect to those assets, customers of a US debtor or foreign debtor? They have to be resolved, and both courts have jurisdiction over it. It's been no secret that if you allow us to do that, just file the application, get the parties to talk. If the parties can't talk, the courts will sort it out rather than go into a jurisdictional war. It gets, it, it gets worked out. Our position is going to be the Bahamian court's the best court to deal with Bahamian law, English law, Barbudan law, Antiguan law, because it is oh, that's all under the Commonwealth. And this court is best charged with dealing with the Chapter 5 issues. Wait, are all these things void? Right? Can they be avoided as a fraud? Things like that can be sorted out. And we have never said this court can't decide any issues. We've been sitting by the phone waiting for the debtors to engage and say, there is in fact something that can go on in the Bahamian court, whereas their position has been zero can ever happen there. Well, I'm not inclined to agree with you that this court should be restricted to deciding the Chapter 5 issues. No, no, I did not mean to, I did not mean to say that. I gave that as an example. Of, we, we would certainly not argue that the Bahamian court should be the one addressing the application of Chapter 5. There are a number of issues that will have to get addressed. And in no, fact, what, I'm, what I'm saying is yeah. this court has to decide whether or not these assets belong to this debtor or do they belong to the Bahamian debtor. Well, that issue involves a question of English law, as we've laid out in the papers, and this court is authorized to abstain in favor of the Bahamian court, to have the Bahamian court resolve certain issues, and the Bahamian court is authorized to abstain and say, Your Honor can do it, or you're both authorized to say, We'll hold joint hearings, we'll hear all the evidence together, and then we will decide amongst ourselves how the issues are going to be decided. But the fundamental starting point... How does that point, work practically? I know we did that in Nortel, and I was involved in the Nortel case, but what do we do? I mean, a joint hearing, and the Bahamian court and I disagree. So then what happens? Now I've got in-rem jurisdiction over the assets, so my decision controls. Your decision would control with respect to the debtor's property in the United States, over which it has accounts, and your jurisdiction would not extend to what Mr. Greaves told you are the assets of DM, which are under DM's control, which are those accounts. Very limited assets, yes. But it's not... Well, I'm going to get to the practical implication of this, but at the end of the day, if you're going to disagree and we're going to lead to a jurisdictional squabble, which I think we should all work as hard as we can to avoid, that's not a good day for anybody, wouldn't we rather deal with it up front than do what Judge Peck did in Lehman, which is allow people to litigate these issues and then say, well, I'm just not recognizing what the English court said. 
sorry, you wasted your time doing it. That, that seems to me to be an inefficient process. Well, that's what I'm trying to avoid as well. Right. So, so it seems to me that starting out at the beginning <coughs> saying, of course, there are issues that need to be dealt with with the Bahamian court. Mr. Greaves can make an application to say, can I use the money that's on deposit on the basis not a trust asset? Why can't he do that? The debtors are saying, absolutely not. You, you are restricted to the ca unrestricted cash right now, and you're going to litigate with me for a year or years over the adversary proceeding with a million dollars in cash. Well, if the Bahamian court has interim jurisdiction over assets, then we're, they're in the same position with regard to those assets that I am with regard to all the other assets. Correct, but the debtors aren't agreeing to that. The debtors are saying well, it is a stay violation for the Bahamian court to exercise its in-rem jurisdiction to decide issues. And this is what the debtors are really concerned about. We're going to go through the terms of service with the Bahamian court. What, what's going on here? It says here, this is this, this is this, and the Bahamian court's going to render a ruling under English law. The only, normally that would not be a problem, but I think the debtors are reticent of, well, I've, I've appeared in that proceeding, and somebody's going to argue that's race judicata against me when we talk about it in my own case with respect to the ownership of the funds. We can solve that in a protocol. <laughs> that, that can all be addressed to make sure that we're not running into that problem. But you can't say, I don't want the Bahamian court to issue any ruling with respect to what it believes English law means with respect to the cash that is in the debtor's hands because that might affect my negotiating position in this case or might affect you. Well, it's not. If you're telling me loud and clear, it's not going to affect you. At the end of the day, you're going to have to come to that decision. And it may be that the English court under English law determines that they're not trust assets. And it may be that you determine under English law with the reference to experts and listening to the experts, you determine they are trust assets. The, the cash the debtors have are trust assets. Well, you one, of the, can't one of the benefits is under English law is it's written in English. So I no. can read it for myself and understand what it says. As opposed to, I've had cases involving laws of Mexico where there's dispute over what the translation of that law is. But it, I don't have that problem. It, 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 may, it may be when we negotiate a protocol that that is the, the result that people come to. I do think, having been through it with Bahamian Council, there are going to be some specific issues with respect to English trust law and whether the language in the document is sufficient to, under English law, uh, confer trust obligations. There are going to be issues with respect to novation under English law and whether English common law provides for the terms of service, as you saw in the testimony today, to be novated such that the customers who <coughs> access the portal with or without the pop-up became customers uh, according to those terms. So well, I think those are all things I can yeah. decide under English law I, I'm with the use of expert testimony. And I can read the, the if there's case law, I can read the case law. If there's statutes, I can read the statutes. I can understand it. I, I, I'm not saying you can't. I'm also saying that it may be that if what ends up happening is we run a proceeding in the Bahamas and there's an evidentiary record created and there's a reasoned decision created by the English 
or the Bahamian court applying English law, you might or might not find it persuasive. Nobody is asking you today to agree to cede any of your jurisdiction or supervisory powers over anything. The only thing we are asking you today is let us invoke the jurisdiction of the Bahamian court and give us some guidance as to what you want us to do with respect to a protocol. It can't be that Mr. Greaves is is limited to $1 million in cash because he can't go talk to his own court about his own cash. Or he can't go out and seek to have customers file proofs of claim based on the determination under English law from the perspective of the DM estate. These are or are not customers and creditors of your estate. The second thing I want to highlight coming out um, at the beginning is the, the notion that and, and I, I'm hearing it a, a little uh, in your honors questioning here effectively the debtor's position and, and your, your honors position is your position but the debtor's position as articulated in their papers is that the only court that can ever touch these issues, issues of who the customers are, where they map to, and what is the obligation under the terms of service with respect to the cash on hand, can only ever be decided by this court and the Bahamian court should never be able to issue a decision, much less hold a hearing with respect to that issue without violating the stay. And look, reading between the lines, 90% of the opposition to what we're doing here is based on a disappointment or regret of the existence of the Bahamian proceeding and effectively ask this court to ignore the fact that there is a proceeding with respect to a non-U.S. debtor proceeding in a recognized foreign main proceeding undertaken by recognized foreign representatives to determine issues. And I think they're trying to tell you that FTX, and this has been their campaign I think since the beginning of the case, FTX trading is a nullity. It was just put there to engage in further fraud. If they really wanted to treat the proceeding as a nullity, they shouldn't have consented to jurisdiction. We have an order that nobody is seeking to vacate or re-argue that says that FTX DM is a debtor in a foreign main proceeding being supervised by foreign representatives who are authorized to come into court like I am today. So wishing away the proceeding isn't an option here. We have to deal with the fact that there is a proceeding pending in another court with respect to a debtor who is not under the general supervisory jurisdiction of this court but rather is sitting in its Chapter 15 capacity. And for all the debtor's rhetoric about this court has an unflagging obligation to grab jurisdiction, protect its jurisdiction, assert precedence over all other courts on all other places, that's just not the law. This is not someone coming in and saying I've got a tort case pending in state court and I want you to let me liquidate my claim there. 
This is three proceedings, a 11, a 15, and a Bahamian proceeding. And there has to be a way to work out issues that can be decided in one case but necessarily might have effects or might not have effects in the other proceeding. And far from uh, advocating the debtors box out at all costs, this is what the federal judiciary says about what's supposed to happen in Chapter 15. And I emphasize it because the debtors have tried to write out entirely the notion of cooperation and the fact that we should at all costs be trying to avoid the loggerheads between two courts. This is from the U.S. Courts Gov website, Bankruptcy Basics, on Chapter 15. The purpose of Chapter 15 and the model law on which it is based is to provide effective mechanisms for dealing with insolvency cases involving debtors, assets, claimants, and other parties of interest involving more than one country. This general purpose is realized through five objectives specified in the statute, and the first one is to promote cooperation between the United States courts and parties of interest and the courts and other competent authorities of foreign countries involved in cross-border and insolvency cases. There has to be some cooperation. And we're just not willing to accept the notion that where we should go here is what the debtors are advocating, zero cooperation. You take jurisdiction over all issues. Every, any, any other court that tries to exercise its jurisdiction over its own debtor takes a back seat, and if they do anything, it's a stay violation by the JPLs, anybody who argues the case, and by the court that issues the ruling in that case. That is not cooperation. One final um, overarching point. There's a lot of insinuation and attack on the JPLs and how they've dealt with, how they have dealt with what Mr. Ray has described as the dumpster fire. Uh, unless the court has questions, I don't intend to spend a lot of time defending the JPLs. They are not, as the papers insinuate, meddling kids seeking to interfere with some master plan. As you saw with Mr. Greaves, uh, they are experienced professionals trying to fulfill their fiduciary duties under difficult circumstances, like the absence of definitive records and answers uh, with clear instructions. And they're proceeding as recognized foreign representatives in a recognized foreign main proceeding. Two, I'm not going to defend the fees that were spent uh, any more than ask the debtors to defend their $225 million to date. Uh, this is an expensive process due to no fault of Mr. Ray or the JPLs. I'm not asking you to decide, nor do you need to decide on this motion, who's breaching the cooperation agreement, if anybody. That's an issue for another day. For today, the evidentiary record is clear and uncontested that one, the JPLs repeatedly tried to engage the debtors in good faith to discuss a protocol. And two, they gave the debtors advance notice of the filing where they threatened a stay violation and then used that breathing space to file their own adversary proceeding. The notion that, the, that we should proceed with this proceeding because it's before you now is an issue that's going to have to be decided, among other things, as we pointed out in our motion to, uh, to dismiss, it's a violation of the Chapter 15 stay on their part to, um, uh, to move forward with that adversary proceeding because that one is clearly seeking to avoid the digital's interest in assets in the United States, the uh, Moonstone and Silver data accounts. So the, the basis for saying we're not going to lift the stay and we're going to proceed here 
because we have a first filed proceeding that has teed up the issue is one in dispute. Um, finally, with respect to the debtor's unclean hands argument, um, given Mr. Mosley's testimony on cross, it's hard to see um, how <laughs> any actions by the uh, JPLs to set up a claims portal or by the Bahamian court to ask that they refile a PROHOC um, uh, was, was anything wrong, much less rose to the extent that, that the JPLs have somehow forfeited their right uh, to proceed on a lift-stay motion. Uh, on the contrary, I think the record is clear that the JPLs have assiduously complied with the stay, uh, and I think it's clear that the debtors are using it offensively here. I, I don't see any explanation for the questions on how much the cash the JPLs have other than a, uh, a pointing out that the debtors can use the stay here to strangle the JPL's case. I mean, it's clear. I mean, I think the, the point is, is that, just to be clear, we hold the, the automatic stay. If the judge enforces it, um, you're not going to be able to even fight. So on to the argument. In the papers, we defended our starting position that the stay does not apply uh, to the filing of the application, just the filing of the application, the invocation of the court's jurisdiction without deciding what issues are going to be decided there or this court and what are the procedures on which they're going to be decided. Well, what control do the JPLs have once the application is filed and the Bahamian court says, well, this is what you got to do? I, wanna, I want to decide. The Bahamian judge says, I want to decide whether or not these assets that are located in the United States belong to the Bahamian entity. I, I have not, uh, my motion has not sought leave for the Bahamian court to well, I'm issue. asking you what the Bahamian court could do on its own. Well, the Bahamian court can do on its own what your honor can do on your own without calling up the Bahamian court with respect to the adversary proceeding. You don't have to call them up and say, how am I going to decide this issue? But what I'm advocating here is there needs to be a process set up. And if that means we have to go to the Bahamian court and say we're filing the application, but for the next two weeks, we're going to try to, or one week or four days, going to try to hammer out a means of making sure that the courts aren't leading to conflicting results. And if not, you're going to have to pick up the phone and, and talk to Chief Justice Winder and work it out. Or otherwise, we are going down this process with conflicting results. And the debtors, to be clear, the debtors, I'll get this on precedent, the debtors always have to go to the Bahamas court. There's no question, even if they won the case, they convince your honor, based on evidence from competent witnesses, that uh, all of the customers stayed with digital. That, that uh, FTX DM was set up as a fraud, as a nullity, and everything about it should be voided. There's still property in the Bahamas in the form of the real property and the cash and crypto, including the crypto being held by the Bahamian Securities Commission. They still have to go get that. Setting up a process in which one court says, I don't care what you think, I'm going to decide this issue, isn't going to foster comedy on the other side to say, okay, well, I'll not return these assets. I don't, so they're going to have to go there anyway. We should just get out in front of it and come up with a means of solving your problem. If we can't solve the problem, you're going to have to solve it because 
both courts have jurisdiction over their debtors and have to decide issues with respect to the terms of service and the nature and extent of the interest in the cash. It has to happen. So, but leave aside that the state doesn't apply. We're here. We've given you the evidentiary record. Let me argue why the state should be lifted again just to allow the application to be filed and work out a cooperation agreement either consensually or non-consensually with the courts. There are three elements, prejudice to the JPLs, prejudice to the debtors, and a determination that the dispute is not frivolous or useless. I'll take those in reverse order on the probability of prevailing on the merits. I know the debtors want to jump down the road on the merits of the underlying dispute, and Your Honor has heard something on the merits of the underlying dispute. Actually, the issue is will it advance the process to allow the JPLs to invoke the jurisdiction of their courts subject to the determination. Nothing's going to happen in that proceeding that's going to affect the U.S. debtors without further order of this court. Just sets up the process. I think the debtors should be directed because they have an obligation both under the code and under the cooperation agreement to negotiate that in good faith. I think they do have to show up to a meeting and say, okay, I'll consider this, I'll consider that, not just fiat it in a different use of the word fiat. But that's where we need to get, and Mr. Green's made it clear. He can file an application. The Bahamas court can take the application, and then the two courts can start to communicate. Otherwise, you're picking up the phone, talking to Chief Justice Winder, and he's saying, I don't have anything in front of me. Same thing you would respond if the debtors hadn't filed the adversary proceeding. You've got to tee it up in both courts. But the record with respect to the underlying merits, if really the issue to be addressed is, is this a live dispute or is this just a waste of time? The record is clear on three points. One, this is a live dispute that's been around since day one and is now framed by the debtors in the adversary proceeding as a legit case of controversy. In other words, they think the dispute is live enough over whose customers are whose and what are the interests in the cash being held by the respective debtors is live enough to bring a declaratory judgment action before you. Two, the 2022 terms of service exist just as they did in prior iterations, as Mr. Mosley made clear. And they made clear, I don't need to walk you through the document, they made clear that FTX Digital was in privity of contract with customers who used services. And the important paragraph says where you read FTX Digital as applying to or talking about specific services with a service provider, cross out FTX Trading and put in FTX Digital. That is a live dispute. And then three, you heard from both Mr. Mosley and Mr. Greaves that the money flowed consistent with those terms. Mr. Greaves described it more fully in paragraph 17 of the declaration, how $13.4 billion of cash flowed through accounts in the name of FTX Digital. In other words, customers' money was held by FTX Digital in accounts owned by FTX Digital. Again, whether or not that was set up as a fraud 
and could all be avoided is an issue that's way down the line and would have to be addressed in the context of, with respect to the debtor's cause of action under Chapter 5 to void all these things. That will proceed in the United States. Okay. I'm not going to argue otherwise. I don't think the Bahamian court has the ability to apply Chapter 5 law and avoid a transaction. But it has to, as I keep saying, it has to be worked out. But this, this is not what we're doing. The court does not need to decide to determine, <laughs> to decide whether to lift the stay, whether or not customers did or did not migrate. It's a question of whether the position that's been taken uh, is frivolous or useless. I want to point out one thing on the voiding of all of this and the inconsistency that debtors are taking. One of the provisions in the 2022 terms of service is 8.2.6. That's the provision that for the first time created the trust relationship between the party named FTX Digital or FTX uh, Trading and the customers. When, when the DOJ talks about the fraud or, or Mr. Ray testifies about the fraud, he stole money customer money. That's the 2022 terms of service. So voiding that contract is something that a lot of people are going to have an interest in addressing. So we're going to have to deal with that in the context of the protocol. Again, all this leads to, the end of the day, either a consensual sorting of issues or a non-consensual one imposed by the two courts that we're just trying to set up so that we don't litigate in multiple proceedings and then have the Bahamas court say, too bad, I'm not, I'm not enforcing that in the Bahamas, or this court saying, too bad, I'm not enforcing this in the United States. That seems to me to be the waste of time that can be solved if experienced professionals sit down with the model rules in this court and the, uh, and the precedents out there and say, these are the issues that need to be done. Here are the participants. The committee should be entitled to intervene in the Bahamas proceeding. Okay. The debtors shall be able to make a new application for Pro Hoc Vice for their lawyer to appear. Okay. This has to be done in the Bahamas on the following schedule. This has to be done in the United States on the following schedule. Present it to you. Present it to Chief Justice Winder. Are you both okay with this? If we're not, right, if you at the end of the day say, under no circumstances am I letting the Bahamas, am I ever abstaining to the Bahamas on this issue, then at least we know now. As opposed to running down the road and litigating this issue only to have the Bahamas court say, I don't care what the U.S. court says, or you say, I don't care what the Bahamas court says. The prejudice to the, um, the debtors, I want to focus on the concept of legally cognizable prejudice. Um, the debtors may be insecure about having this court coordinate with the Bahamas court, but I don't understand the legally cognizable pre uh, <laughs> prejudice of having the two courts talk to each other. 
That's not, your honor is not being asked to give up any jurisdiction, any supervisory power. You can have a conversation and say, we've got to get to the bottom of this terms of service. Who's whose customer? Who's, how are these funds being held? How are my funds, my debtor's funds being held? How are your funds debtors being held? We've got to get to the bottom of it. We can do it as a joint proceeding. We can do it not as a joint proceeding. You decide it all. The Bahamian court may say, you know what, I don't want to deal with any of these issues. You may say, there's no chance I'm going to be determining whether or not Mr. Greaves under Bahamian law can spend money that is in the account. I think there are going to be things where everybody's going to easily agree, and it may get difficult in the middle, but it, because it's difficult doesn't mean we should push it down the road and deal with it later, particularly in a case where costs are big. So the, the legally cognizable prejudice, um, it, it just isn't there. All of this about how the proceedings might play out, we can't appear in the Bahamas, the, the committee can't uh, have a creditor representative, all that should be worked out and can be worked out in the context of a cross-border protocol. No, you're not being asked to decide those issues today. And with, the, with respect to the debtor's notion, well, the Bahamas is obviously, because the Bahamas doesn't have nuclear weapons, they're not entitled to the same deference we would give to France. That's not, first of all, that's just not the case. Chapter 15 applies to any debtor. But more importantly, this court has already recognized on a consensual order the, the Bahamas proceeding as the foreign main proceeding and the JPLs as authorized representatives in the United States. The issue of whether, whether due process can be fulfilled there or expenses can be controlled or whether or not the, anything can go on in the Bahamas at all is, an answer, is a question that's already been answered in a recognition order. Finally, um, prejudice to the JPLs. What happens if Mr. Greaves can't file the application? He can't invoke the jurisdiction of his court to get an answer. I got cash sitting here. Can I spend it? Or I've got an obligation, fiduciary obligation, to determine who my customers are, track them down, and provide notice of my proceeding. What happens if he can't do that? The testimony, I think, is clear from today and in his declaration. One, the JPLs are appointed by the Bahamas court with specific fiduciary and other duties and specific powers. They are a creature of the court. Two, one duty is to seek directions where the estate needs resolution of legal issues affecting the assets or liabilities. Got an obligation to go to the court and seek instructions. Three, there are issues facing the digital estate with respect to what is its property, what of that property is held in trust, and who are the customers who are entitled to share in the assets, either specifically their assets held in trust or non-specifically as a general creditor. And they can't, as the, the questioning made clear, just ignore their duties. They can't close the case. I, I get it. The debtors, we all woke up tomorrow and the debtors were faced with the situation. The SCB never acted. 
It never exercised its police powers to close down that business and start a provisional liquidation. And Mr. Ray had come in and had filed that entity here. Okay, that, that, I guess that might be more efficient. It might not be more efficient. I don't know. But we can't wish it away. They have specific obligations to go to their court, and the debtors are saying they can't. The debtors are putting them in a fiduciary trap and asking your honor to order that trap where they have obligations to fulfill, and they can't get comfort from their court that listening to the United States or listening to Mr. Diedrich is a fulfillment of their fiduciary duty. They can't just say, you know what, let's remigrate all the customers back. They can't say, let's just send all our cash over. They can't say, let's just release all of our claims to, for the return of the billions of dollars that flowed out of the digital accounts to the US accounts. They can't. Practically speaking, in a proceeding that we can't wish away, there are processes that need to be filed, and I'll say it one last time, this court recognized that proceeding as the foreign main proceeding and legitimize the Bahamian court and the proceeding as a proper use of chapter 15. So I, I, I'm gonna say this one last time too. We are not, I have never asked the court, nor am I advocating now, we didn't write it in the papers, we're not asking it for it in the order granting the stay. Asked to do anything other than lift the uh, stay to allow the filing of the application subject to the term that nothing's happening with respect to the debtor's property or the debtor's rights without further order of this court. And quite frankly, I do think we need an order directing the parties to work in good faith to take that first step. No one's asking you to walk the whole staircase and, and move down this process. But I think it is a valid use and probably an important use of the US debtor's assets right now and the JPL's assets, this isn't free, to find out at the beginning, can we just avoid the position we nobody wants to put a court in? We don't want to put you in the position, we don't want to put the Bahamian court in the position of saying, you know what, I'm not buying into this. I am not ever going to enforce an order of the Bahamian court or the Bahamian court saying I'm never going to enforce an order of the United States court that says that FTXDM was void from the start. So we got to make, got to take the step. Parties should be asked to, on a near-term basis, negotiate in good faith to get to that protocol. And if we can't decide it, to come back to your honor on some other basis and say, this is what we think the protocol should be. And then we can address the issues of, well, that's not really right. I, you're asking Judge Dorsey to give up his jurisdiction over an issue relating to the 2022 terms of service. Your honor, we don't think you should do it. And you may say, I'm not approving that part of the protocol. I, I think where we get is we're gonna to have to have joint hearings on the terms of service and the migration. We may have to have a joint hearing on whether FTX Digital alone among the FTX Enterprise was a, a specific instrument of fraud. But we should be able to work this out. 
We really should. And I wouldn't have come here and moved all this resource towards this issue if I didn't think that it was necessary to do it up front and we have an opportunity to do it and it should be done so that you're not put in a bad position at a later date. So unless Your Honor has any questions, I'd ask you to grant the motion as specified in the order for the specific actions that we've laid out in the motion. Okay. Thank you. Your Honor, Jeff Sabin from Venable, who represent the Ad Hoc Group, who issued their statement in partial support. I want to answer your two questions that are vexing you. First, if it were to be quickly, because our clients, like others here, are international customers who are worried about one thing, maximizing their recovery in as short a period of time as possible. If there were to be, even perhaps before you were to make a decision here, a call with two judges, who certainly everyone in this room respects for what they do, to talk to each other and say, you know what? Yes, we can have joint hearings. We can focus the issues. We can even decide amongst ourselves right now that if we were to disagree, maybe we'll have a discussion on appointing a third who would be effectively the final arbiter of those issues. Anything that we can do pragmatically, and I think you have the power to do this, that's what we are otherwise pushing for. And we're pushing for it for all the reasons that all parties seem to say, which is we need to get to an understanding of the facts relevant to these key issues of law to move this case forward. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Anyone else wish to speak in support of the motion? Okay. I can almost say good afternoon, Your Honor. Andy Dieterich, Sullivan and Cromwell for the debtors. Your Honor, we're six months into these cases, and the JPLs still do not accept the premise that the cases are really in Delaware. This is not a motion for court-to-court communication. It's not a motion for protocol. It's not a motion to ask you to call the Bahamas judge. It's a motion to transfer venue on the central issues of this case to another court. It's not a motion to dismiss the cases, but it is, if granted, a motion to gut them. And we know this because that's what they wrote down. The motion seeks an order from Your Honor granting permission to file the application. The application seeks a declaration from another court. The declaration is not advisory. It is not guidance. It is a binding declaration. The other court is asked to decide if FTX Digital Markets owns all rights and obligations related to user accounts at FTX.com. The other court would decide if FTX Digital Markets owns all digital assets associated with FTX.com. The other court would decide the nature of customer rights against FTX.com. The other court would decide if the JPLs are a trustee for customers empowered to collect $11 billion of missing customer entitlements. The other court would decide the scope of the powers of the JPL as trustee. The other court would decide how much property is in the trust that it's entrusted the JPLs with in response to the application. The other court would decide if the tracing rules 
by which the trustee would claw back assets from all of the debtors and from all of the non-debtors and from any person to which the debtors have made any transfer. This is the worst kind of slippery slope. An indication of its scope is the short statement filed by the JPLs themselves relating to the Voyager settlement. So this was done March 7th after our cooperation agreement. Uh, Voyager received a preferential payment in our view from Alameda, from Alameda, Your Honor, not from FDX Trading. We agreed a procedural stipulation and asked the court and Judge Wiles to so order it. The JPLs intervened with a short statement. It said that, Voyage, that the JPLs may have a, uh, an interest in the proceeds received by Voyager, and the JPLs reserve the right to claw that back into FTXDM. I'd like to read what that statement says, if I may. This is on the docket, docket 819. The joint provisional liquidators expressly reserve the right to file and prosecute proofs of claim against the Voyager debtors, including claims related to payments made by any of the U.S. debtors to the Voyager debtors during the relevant preference periods with funds originating from the digital estate. And keep in mind, they think, in the earlier uh, paragraphs to this pleading, that the money came from digital markets and went to Alameda, so therefore they can chase the preference. The motion should not impact the rights of the joint provisional liquidators to seek to intervene in any mediation or litigation concerning the preference claims. In short, if there is to be global peace with the Voyager debtors, that peace cannot likely be reached solely in the United States. What the JPLs are asking for is effectively, operationally, concurrent jurisdiction over all of the assets of our estate. Luckily, they can't have it. And they can't have it because of the global automatic stay. The global automatic stay is why we filed in Delaware in the first place. This is one of the most complex insolvencies ever filed. It may be the most complex insolvency ever filed. But we have had one saving grace. We know who calls balls and strikes. We have centralized jurisdiction. If you take centralized jurisdiction away from us, in light of the complexity of what we face as a debtor's team, we will not be here for years. We may be here for decades. So there are two questions before the court. Does the stay apply? And if the stay applies, has the movement shown cause to, to lift the stay to file the application? Now, Your Honor, there can be no serious question if you actually read the application uh, that the stay applies to it. The application seeks determination of ownership of property of the estate. If this were an action initiated in a Bahamas civil court by a creditor alleging the creditor owned all of the property of the debtor's estate, the action would be stayed. And there's no exception to the scope of the stay for a non-U.S. insolvency proceeding. So the only real question before the court is whether the movement has carried its burden of showing cause to lift the stay. And the heart of that test, as Your Honor knows, is evidence presented as to the balance of harms. We would submit, Your Honor, that there is in the record obvious evidence of substantial harm to the debtors, their estates, and their creditors if the core issues of this case are moved to the Bahamas. Mr. Mosley testified about expense. That cannot be dismissed. There would be new counsel, travel, additional hearings, 
not for some discrete contractual issue, but for all of the issues that I mentioned would be raised by the application, including the tracing of assets. And if you read the filing they made in March, every single cause of action that we would bring on an outbound basis. Now, he may say today, Section 5 is reserved for your honor, but that has not been their position to date. And this is redundant. This expense is dead weight lost because the proceedings would be redundant. We would be back here litigating in front of your honor the same issues anyway. Now, there was reference to the Chapter 15 recognition order, and I think this is very important. We consented to Chapter 15 recognition after initially contesting it, and we did so because of one provision that we wrote in the recognition order. And the rec this is in the recognition order in the, of course, on the docket of the other case at 129. And it says, nothing, paragraph 9, nothing in this order or any relief granted hereby requires the court in the Chapter 11 cases to defer to any decision in the Bahamian liquidation proceeding with respect to or alters the court's de novo standard of review on any matter raised by the Chapter 11 debtors before the court in the Chapter 11 cases with respect to property of the Chapter 11 debtors, including without limitation the scope of property of the estate or the application of the automatic stay. We bargained for that because we expected that this would happen. We recognize the JPLs because they need representation in the United States to vindicate their rights. But we did not, by doing so, cede the primacy of the Chapter 11 to determine what is property of this estate and all of the rights that come with that. If there is something that is not property of our estate over which digital markets has custody, then there is a purpose for the Chapter 15, and we fully support that purpose. We also fully support the Chapter 15 to make sure that we know who can speak for the JPLs in federal court. But that's it. So it is redundant because I can virtually assure you that if we were simply to allow litigation to proceed in the Bahamas and a result of that litigation were to come back here, I think it's highly unlikely the debtors would support that judgment. We might. We don't know what it says. But I think it's highly unlikely. And not only that, but not only we would have to support it, but every other stakeholder would have to support it because that language benefits not only us, it benefits all of our stakeholders as well. So the cost is incremental cost. There's no cost savings. And as I said, this is not just about us. This is about every other party in the case that would also need to go through the process that we ourselves have not yet completed to get a KC into the Bahamas court to represent us. Everyone would have to go through that. And, Your Honor, unlike a lot of the state cases, these aren't sunk costs. The Bahamian proceeding on these issues is not even at the starting line. We have no investment in the process there. Mr. Greaves testified he's not aware of a single creditor appearing in the Bahamian joint liquidation proceeding. Contrast that to what we've already accomplished in this case today. But, but, something not in the evidence is equally prejudicial, and I want to speak to it as a lawyer. Because venue here is not simply about who decides, but it is about the law they use to decide the question. And we've been treating the law like it's a fixed thing. But the important principles of law are not fixed at all. What is at issue? At issue is 
whether or not they need to come to this court and ask to establish, with the burden of proof on them under Section 362, that they have an interest in property of the estate. Congress gave the debtor the benefit of the burden of proof on that question. And the first thing that might happen if that question leaves this court is we lose the burden of proof. But that pales in comparison to the second issue, the question of constructive trust. We've talked a lot about customer property interest. We've been working through the question of whether customers have a property interest in digital assets or fiat currency for months. It is a very, very advanced discussion with many different stakeholders. There's been two separate adversary proceedings filed in this court on that question, and they're suspended to permit these discussions to continue. Now, the question of customer property rights has two elements. The first is contractual. Is there a user agreement or another contract that creates a trust or a bailment under contractual law? We have user agreements under US law, Australian law, Cypriot law, Japanese law, Swiss law, and English law. We've looked at the question each. For FTX.com, the question is governed by English law. And the question, the English law question, is whether that contract creates an express trust. We believe the question is straightforward, and the answer, after our work, is no. But the matter's not before the court. If it's ever litigated, and if the question is even clear enough to be litigated, we believe Your Honor will agree when you hear the evidence. And we clearly believe you're competent to do so. But that's not the interesting question. The interesting question, under virtually all of these arrangements, is constructive trust. And as a federal court sitting in Delaware, Your Honor should apply Delaware conflict of law principles. Under Delaware law, constructive trust is a remedial doctrine, and the law of the forum applies. This means that the substantive law of constructive trust to be applied to all of our creditors who are before you will be Delaware law. For all customers and all creditors alleging a constructive trust or a similar equitable property interest. The ad hoc group of customers, I think they're represented here today, pled it this way in the papers before the court. And we agree. There's an English law express trust question for FTX.com, and there's a Delaware constructive trust question. Now, the essence of constructive trust, of course, is unjust enrichment. And we're not talking about unjust enrichment of Sam Bankman-Free, who will not see a penny from these cases. What we're talking about is potentially unjust enrichment of one customer at the expense of another customer, or customers as a group at the expense of other creditors, or creditors as a group at the expense of other customers. And we are going to face these issues from potentially millions of people, or at least the representatives of millions of people. And it is essential to be fair to all creditors alleging a constructive trust that one set of rules apply, and that everybody is treated fairly and equally. This is lost if we take one particular allegation of a constructive property interest and send it to the Bahamas, because we lose the burden of proof selectively, which is supposed to benefit all of our creditors. And all of a sudden, we have a constructive trust being alleged under law of a different forum than your honors. Now, this is important. If you look at docket joint exhibit 7, this is also on the docket at 1193. This is the declaration of Meta McMillan Hughes, which was admitted into evidence by the JPLs without objection from us. And I just want to point to one quick provision, which is in paragraph 6. And in paragraph 6, she says, in addition, certain relevant regulatory and insolvency issues are governed by Bahamian law, blah, 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 blah. 
But then she says, trust issues are also likely to be governed by Bahamian, English, or Antiguan law. I think that's probably true. If the case goes, if venue goes to the Bahamas, those laws will govern trust, constructive trust as well. If they stay here, Delaware law will govern at least constructive trust. And if that's not enough prejudice, Your Honor, I want to talk about the plan process. And here I have one single slide. If we can put that up. The automatic stay exists for a purpose, and the purpose is to allow us to prosecute a plan of reorganization. We've been called ambitious for this timeline, but we intend to try our best to deliver on it. This is the work ahead, and we are well on our way. At, on the left-hand side is where we generally are today. Our general bar date is June 30th. We've set the general bar date at June 30th because we have some visibility into customer claims and less visibility into non-customer entitlement claims. That bar date will give us that visibility. We have undertaken publicly to have a draft plan of reorganization, not the final, but a draft plan of reorganization filed publicly in July. We're in discussions, consensual plan discussions already with many stakeholders with respect to that plan of reorganization, including the committee. We have a customer bar date, but importantly, near the end of this year, we anticipate having an amended plan and disclosure statement that reflects the benefit of these consensual plan discussions resolve plan disputes, and confirm a plan in the second quarter of 2024. Mr. Your Honor, I have no objection to counsel talking to you about a plan, but it's not part of the confirmation record. Uh, sorry, the lift-stay motion record. Mr. Mosley was here and could have testified to any of this. They chose not to do it that way, so I don't think it's it would it, he can talk as he wants, but it shouldn't be part of the evidentiary record, and we object to it. Understood. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, the, are the, we also, Your Honor, have identified, and this is important, we have said in our pleadings that we do not require any relief from the Bahamas for the confirmation of our plan, and that is true. We do not need to go to the Bahamas. We would love to have a solution to the question of the property company in the Bahamas, which is a debtor, by the way. The only thing necessary for us to do to sell all of our real estate in the Bahamas and pay 100% of the proceeds to customers and creditors is for the automatic stay to be respected with respect to that entity. That's it. Now, whether or not the automatic stay will be respected by um, the one creditor of uh, the property company in the Bahamas, which is uh, digital markets, I don't know. But the only thing that's necessary for us to sell the approximately $250 million of real estate we have in the Bahamas is for the stay to be respected so that we can do so, because that company is a debtor. And the JPLs have a claim against the debtor, but it is an unsecured claim. The only other property in the Bahamas, of which we're aware, is a very small amount of operating cash and a little bit of customer FBO cash. Would we like to include that and distribute that to customers? Absolutely. But in a, in our business judgment is that we would be nuts to link our estate and all of our value to the estate to a process that requires concurrent jurisdiction with the Bahamas simply because we're worried about a relatively modest amount of customer FBO cash. We do need to decide if customers have a property interest, but we need your honor to decide that. We don't need the Bahamas court to decide it. 
And there's nothing in this confirmation plan that involves it. The other important issue we have with digital markets is, of course, who owns the IP and the customer relationships and the goodwill of the business in case we'd like to sell or recapitalize FTX 2.0 in connection with our plan of reorganization. Is that essential for confirmation? Probably not. Would we like to do it? Absolutely. Do we require any relief from the Bahamas to sell it free and clear? Under no circumstances. So our answer to this conundrum, we would have a different approach, Your Honor, if we had $5 billion here and $5 billion there, or a different approach if we had not already concluded that we have all of the assets in REM and owe those assets to all of the customers. Our job is to get assets to customers and creditors as quickly and expeditiously as possible, and we cannot in our business judgment decide the right way to do that is to invoke concurrent jurisdiction for no practical business purpose. So again, we would love to have a deal with digital markets with respect to what happens to their FBO customer cash, which I understand to be less than $100 million, and we'd love to have a consensual resolution of the property in the Bahamas. But we do not need it for confirmation, and we're not going to put ourselves in a position where we need it for confirmation. Lastly, Your Honor, in terms of prejudice, this issue is not confined to digital markets in the Bahamas. Digital markets is one of approximately 130 subsidiaries, about 100 debtors, about 130 subsidiaries. If the stay is listed, lifted for one insolvency case, we can expect petitions to lift it for others. The court could decide each motion when it's filed on its merits, but the precedent has been set. And in this case, a precedent of global centralization is very, very important to the plan process that we want to conduct. Okay, that's us. On the other side of the scales, prejudice to the JPLs. Well, there's virtually no evidence of this in the record. And Mr. Shore talked about legally cognizable prejudice. I want to focus on exactly that. In some of the papers, there was a reference that Bahamas proceeding might be quicker, so it could be cheaper. Well, again, our view is it's entirely redundant, so any cost is incremental, and any cost is a deadweight loss. But if it's quicker, one has to ask ourselves, all right, well, if it's quicker, then that has a relationship to whether or not that proceeding will then be respected by your honor, ourselves, and the other stakeholders in this process. And I would submit that the alleged defects of slowness in a federal court process that gives notice and opportunity to be heard to everybody as it must is not legally cognizable harm in a federal court. Familiarity with the issue has been mentioned. Well, as I said, we see the English law issue as a very discreet issue. Um, your honor has already done a cryptocurrency case, unlike many judges around the world. Um, your honor is familiar with the basic principles, um, thanks to that case and this case and everything else. Um, we would argue your honor is equally capable, if not more capable, the Bahamian judge to deciding an English law question. But regardless, speculation about the relative familiarity sets of two judges is not cognizable prejudice that shows cause to lift the stay. Mr. Greaves acknowledged today, acknowledged on the stand today, this court can hear the issues that concern him, the court is competent to hear the issues that concern him, and the issues raised in the application, what do they own and who are their creditors, are the same issues as what do we own and what are our creditors, 
And those are the same issues set forth in the adversary proceeding. So we are talking about a redundant proceeding. The harm in the record, and there was evidence of this harm, the harm in the record is harm to the JPLs as fiduciaries. They won't be able to comply with their fiduciary duties. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I would think that the JPLs could ask their court to give them comfort that they're not violating their fiduciary duties in a manner that creates some kind of liability, regardless of what Your Honor decides. But in any event, the JPLs are not here in a personal capacity. The JPLs are not here to say, there's harm to me. The JPLs are agents, not principals. They represent an estate. They represent creditors. For harm to be cognizable, it can't be harm to the agent. It has to be harm to the principal. There is nothing in the record, no evidence whatsoever, of any harm to digital markets for litigating the question in front of you, only to the JPLs. There's no record of harm to any creditor of litigating the matter in front of you, because there can't be. Because again, we have the assets, and we can give them to all of the creditors immediately without bypassing through, 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 through the Bahamas. Zero evidence. And I would submit that the fiduciary duties of the JPL may require them to come ask your court to transfer venue to their court. But the fiduciary duties of the JPL do not require you to grant the relief. Finally, and this is, I think, important enough, even if it's not expressed, but there's several references to this throughout the JPL's papers. Strongly implied. They contain many references to actions of the current Bahamian government, the Bahamian regulators, the DARE Act. And there is another interest here. The Bahamian government may have an interest in the outcome of these cases, an interest in having matters heard in the Bahamas. You know, there was mention of comity, interest in the regulatory structure, attracting new crypto investments, maybe even in being the host to FTX 2.0. I don't know which way that cuts, Your Honor, but I do know, luckily, you don't need to consider those issues because they're not part of the standard for stay relief. The Bahamian government is not here in front of the court today. The Bahamian judiciary, as judiciary, is not in front of the court today. The JPLs are. And as they've reminded us many times, the JPLs do not speak for the Bahamian government. So, the case law, very, very briefly. Putting it together, it is really a three-pronged test, as Mr. Shore mentions, um, but with one important caveat. And if you look at a case, for example, uh, DBSD, Judge Walsh phrased this very nicely, uh, 407BR159 at 166. Three prongs. Is there great prejudice to the estate if the litigation is allowed to continue? Now, that's an interesting phrase itself, because most of these cases are about something that's already been commenced. This, again, is here and not there. But I think we have put in sufficient evidence that there is indeed great harm if this case loses the benefit of the global automatic stay. So the next prong is, does the movement, is the hardship to the movement, sorry, movement, sorry consider, does it, the hardship considerably outweigh the hardship to the debtors? Considerably outweigh. Is, it, is there considerably more hardship to the JPL in having to ask this court to decide that they own property of our estate than being able to get selective treatment and go to the Bahamas and do the same thing. And I think clearly uh, the evidence today has shown 
that there, um, there is not cause to lift the stay on that basis. What's the probability of success on the merits? Well, for today, nobody knows. Now, we clearly believe that this argument is a difficult one for the JPLs to make because as Mr. Mosley testified, there may be specified services provided by DM, matching trades on an exchange, but custody of crypto, custody of cash were not specified services. And so as Mr. Mosley said, and that reflects many conversations we've had on the debtor side, there's no way we could tell any customer, I'm sorry, all this value we have collected, not for you, you can go to the Bahamas. We're not in a position to do that for the simple fact that we were the custodian of all of the crypto and all of the digital assets. Our name is at the top of the agreement. Our name is at the top of the website. We own the website, we own the intellectual property, and we are completely implicated by this. And so we've decided as a debtor that there's just, you know, we, we would love to get rid of some claims by sending them somewhere else, but it's just not fair to do. So, but there's a fourth kind of quasi-prong, and Walsh mentions that in his opinion, and I think it's important, in fact, Mr. Shore mentioned it in an oblique way as well, which is, Walsh uh, writes, Judge Walsh writes, Courts also place emphasis on whether lifting the automatic stay will impede the orderly administration of the case. And here, it clearly will. Your Honor, you, unless you have questions, Your Honor, um, I would just close by reiterating that we are confident as debtors that we can confirm a plan of reorganization for this case in the second quarter of 2024. No promises and no guarantees. But that is a path forward that we believe is viable, but only with the full protection of the global automatic stay. The movements have not carried their burden to show cause for relief from the stay at this time. And Your Honor, respectfully, the motion should be denied. Let me ask you Thank one you. question <clears throat> address Mr. Shore's argument about <clears throat> the fact that if we proceed here, the JPLs are going to be put at a disadvantage because they don't have access to cash to be able to pay their lawyers and the JPLs to represent their interests here. How do I address that issue? Well, I think you have to ask the question. We have many people who would like to be paid their fees in this case uh, to represent interests of various clients. I think the question would be, does a digital markets estate um, in REM have access to property sufficient to pay? Or, as they've said, I think the first implication they said if the state were listed kind of applies if it's not listed as well. Can they get litigation funding? And can they get what we would call in the United States a dip? Um, I don't have any other solutions for that because any other dollar that we pay them comes out of the creditor's pocket. Well, he says you're objecting to them even being able to go to the Bahamian court to ask for that relief, to ask for a dip, to ask for uh, some kind of access to the cash that they do have in REM in the Bahamas. Well, Your Honor, if this were a completely different application, right, if the request were um, not to determine what's property of the estate, but to identify something that we agree is their property, and they were going to ask the court to access it, then that could, we would obviously have no concern with that. The problem is the, problem is the only assets to which they've pointed, the only assets, and I, 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 if they had something else, they had operating cash, but it's been spent. The only other assets we're familiar that they have is the unsecured claim against the property company, which is a debtor, 
is the little bit of operating cash they have and a little bit of crypto and customer FBO cash. And so if the request is, let us go to our Bahamian court and ask to use customer FBO cash to pay the expenses of the JPL, and they'd like to go to their court to ask that question, that does, in fairness, put us in a difficult spot because those customers are our customers, it, and it may be an account in their name, but it was received by them as effectively an agent on some combination of our behalf or the customer's behalf, and having them, send that, having them spend that money on their own fees is, you know, as I said, will come directly <coughs> dollar for dollar out of customer recoveries. So open-minded, and believe me, we have spent a lot of time negotiating with the JPLs. We didn't don't mean to give them the stiff arm, and we recognize we have the, the, do have some Bahamian nexus to this case in terms of the FBO cash and the property company, and we're open-minded. One of the things we have said to them, for example, is that we've had an arrangement where we could jointly monetize the property, recognizing that it was in the Bahamas even though it's a debtor. We've had yet to be able to agree with them on a process that we believe passes Chapter 11 muster for making sure the property can be disposed of in a fair and transparent way that satisfies 363. As soon as we're able to do that, we have told the JPLs that they can pay their expenses of monetizing the property out of the proceeds of the sale of the property, for example. And there may be other solutions for other property in the Bahamas, and we are always happy to talk to them about that. But this application, the, the application before the court today, is not that question, but something entirely different. Okay, thank you. Afternoon, Your Honor. Ken Pasquale from Paul Hastings for the committee. I'm going to be very brief. Mrs. Dietrich really hit many, many of the points that I was planning to comment on. But let me let me start with the last, which was your Your Honor's question specifically about the loan, but more more broadly about the Bahamian application. And I agree with what Mr. Dietrich just said. Uh, the the JPLs can do what they need to do in the Bahamas, subject to the stay. That doesn't mean everything. Um, they can take the assets they have. They can try to administer their estate with those assets. But when they ask, as they do in this motion, to raise and resolve issues that implicate property of the estate, that they can't do. That violates the state for all the reasons you've heard today. And if there's any question about it, if you look at Joint Exhibit 8, that's the directions that they're asking for. Mr. Dietrich hit on this. They're asking for determinations as to property of the estate that, as Your Honor properly uh, mentioned earlier, is this court's jurisdiction. It almost is that simple on this application. And there is no other application before the court as we stand here today. For all of the talk from the JPL's counsel, Mr. Shore, about, well, we really just want a joint protocol. That's not the case. The application shows the contrary. And what is really being sought here, and again, Mr. Dietrich hit on all these points, is litigation over property of these estates. What the committee is most concerned about, Your Honor, and frankly, your first question hit on it, is duplication of effort, lack of efficiency, and cost. Because the costs of these efforts come out of the creditors. And when I say creditors in the context of this dispute, we're talking about the customers of the international exchange. And they're the same. If 
the same people we're fighting about. And there's no benefit to any of those customers from all of what's gone on here this morning. This is a jurisdictional tug of war. And there's no reason for it. We are here, the committee, representing all of those creditors, those customers of the international exchange. The debtors, of course, are here. All the assets of the estates are here. And the JPLs are here through their Chapter 15 process. There is no reason for any of the issues raised by this application to be heard in the Bahamas. So we would ask that the motion be denied. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Shore. Three quick points, Your Honor. Again, Chris Shore from Wait and Case uh, on behalf of the JPLs. Let me start with my, what Mr. Pasquale just said about the customers. That's the I wish they weren't there argument. It would, this would be a lot easier for the customers if there weren't two courts and there was only one court with jurisdiction over issues. I didn't create the problem. The JPLs didn't create the problem. There are two jurisdictions right now with worldwide jurisdiction over issues affecting their debtors' estates. So to say this isn't helping the customers, I, I can't do anything about that. It's just the process that has been put in place that Mr. Greaves and the other JPLs are trying to exercise their duties on. Second, I, I heard from both counsel the slippery slope argument of, well, what they really want to do, Mr. Pasquale said, uh, it's, it's file and prosecute the action. We're not asking for that. And I heard Mr. Dietrich say, well, if they had just come to us and said, we want access to this, that wouldn't have been a problem. That's contrary to the evidence. The evidence was in the declarations and in the testimony that the JPL said, could we have a discussion about what can go forward in the Bahamas and what can go forward in the United States? And the response was, no, we can't have a discussion about it. There is zero tolerance for having any issue decided in the Bahamas. And if you file anything there, it will be a willful violation of the state. So I'm just trying to find a way to allow that conversation to happen. And let's be clear about what this is. You keep referring to it, and you're right. In rem jurisdiction. The Bahamian court has in rem jurisdiction over the following assets, the cash. Now, they keep saying it's just a modicum of cash. From our perspective, it leads to the second asset. The debtors, from our perspective, trading, stole $6.9 billion of customer funds and sent it to Alameda, who then frittered it away. But the, the bankruptcy or the Bahamas court has jurisdiction over that claim. It shares it with you. You both have worldwide jurisdiction over resolving that issue. They have jurisdiction over the claim into properties. Those are all assets which are under control of the Bahamian court. This is what we want, ultimately. Somebody online that we need to cut off. If we file the application and we all have a discussion, I like the newfound good faith efforts of the debtors to say, had they just asked us, we would have given them this. Have a discussion about that. What is the problem 
with us going in and asking the Bahamian court to determine whether or not the assets over which that court has in-rem jurisdiction are held in trust under the law of that forum. The debtor's position, and I hope you heard the delay in Mr. Diedrich's voice in responding to your question on coming up with the right word. This is what they're worried about. The Bahamian court looks at it and says, under English law, I'm looking at this, these assets are held in trust. And I'm looking at this contract, and these are your customers. What they're worried is that somehow affects their estate. It affects their negotiating position. It affects their standing in front of this court, that somehow this court is going to just blindly say, well, the English court said that, so I'm going to do it. Your Honor's clearly not going to be doing that. But the mere fact that the debtors, the prejudice to the debtors, is that there will have been a court that spoke on the 2022 terms of service and said something about it is not a basis for denying the JPLs from moving forward. Now, we could fix it if we actually sat down and had a discussion over protocol. We could put in a provision in the order that says, under no circumstances will any determination made by the Bahamas court have any preclusive or any effect whatsoever in the United States without further order of this court. Okay. We could try to seal the proceedings so nobody knows what the English court ruled. I don't know. But the position that's been met with the debtors, contrary to their obligations under the cooperation agreement, is those conversations are dead. You are a deadweight loss. We don't want to deal with you. We wish we didn't have to deal with you. And now you can't do anything in your case. I'm just trying to avoid, I hope I've been clear, trying to avoid you having to write in an order that says nothing the Bahamas court does will have any effect in the United States without first having a conversation. Can we fix this somehow? But there is zero prejudice to the debtors, legally cognizable prejudice, by having the JPLs go to their court and say, you've got in-rem cash. It is the FTX digital's cash. I need some rulings about what I can do with that cash. Or I need some rulings as to whether you would consider these my customers or somebody else's customers. Zero prejudice to the United States debtors if what we do is we put in a provision that says nothing that the Bahamas court does in all of this will have any effect in the United States. And if they don't want to appear, then fine. I don't care. They don't have to appear there if that provision is in there. But what I don't want is what they're actually doing, which is starving my estate so that they can do through you enforcing the stay what they weren't able to do in the normal processes, which is just wish it all away. We're going to get the litigation. If the debtor's defense in all of this is this property was never held in trust under those terms of service because they weren't a service provider on the cash, they welcome that litigation. We'll get to it. We'll get to it in some court. It's just a question of whether we have to put everything on the Bahamas on hold to satisfy the debtor's concern that they've really just articulated to you now. What is the prejudice by having them do it? Well, it's going to upset the plan process, and it could possibly tell people that our view of the contracts is wrong. We could fix that. 
But what we can't do is have them use the, the stay as a sword to deprive us from doing anything on the idea that your honor is going to be instructing the JPLs how to treat the property over which you don't have jurisdiction and the customer relationships that they have over which you don't have jurisdiction. So we're just asking, lift the stay to allow us to file the application. We're not prosecuting it. And if what we're talking about is putting a provision in the order that says, and pending further order of the court, the Bahamian court shall not take any action. And if it takes any action, that action will be void. That gives us the opportunity to have a discussion and decide these issues rather than have the debtors in the evidentiary record say, I'm not talking about it under any circumstances, and then come up in front of your honor and try to say, well, if we had just discussed this, it all would have been worked out. We can work it out. I'm not trying to tread on your jurisdiction. I'm not asking for your jurisdiction to be curtailed in any way, your supervisory powers to be curtailed in any way. Just trying to solve this issue without leading to a diplomatic event between the United States and the Bahamas over two courts saying I'm not listening to the other. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. Well, I'm going to think about this overnight. I'll give you my ruling tomorrow. But I, I will tell you now um, that under no circumstances would I ever defer a core jurisdictional issue to a foreign court. Um, and the core jurisdictional issue here is whose assets are these? And they're assets over which I have in REM jurisdiction. Um, and that's something that has to be decided here. I understand the Bahamian court may have concurrent jurisdiction, but as a practical matter, they don't have access to the assets. Only I have assets. Only I have access to the assets. Um, so I'm going to ask the parties to talk this evening, see if there's any way to resolve the issue based on the arguments that I've heard about what the limitations are on what the JPLs are asking for. Um, and uh, I will think about how my, I'm going to ultimately rule, and I'll do that tomorrow at the hearing. Okay? Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. Um, do we want anything else to go forward today, or do we want to we still have a little bit of time? Do we have enough time? May I have a minute, Your Honor? Sure. For the record, Adam Landis uh, on behalf of FTX Trading Limited. We'd like to try to get as far as we can uh, on an evidentiary basis on the sealing motions if Your Honor is inclined to let us push through. Let's go. Thank you.
Thank you, Your Honor. Um, again, for the record, Brian Buxton, Sullivan, and Cromwell. The next motion, as Mr. Landis indicated, is the joint motion of the debtors in the committee uh, for an order, order authorizing redaction of certain uh, confidential information of customers and individuals. Um, we do have, the uh, parties jointly have two witnesses uh, with respect to this motion. Uh, Mr. Kofsky, uh, the debtor's um, investment banker who testified on these issues before the court uh, previously, uh, and Mr. Sheridan. Um, we, as the debtors, would like to call uh, Kevin Kofsky to the stand as the first witness. All right, Mr. Kofsky. Sorry, Your Honor, for the record, David Wender with Eversheds, counsel for the Ad Hoc Committee. And because the motion seeks similar relief, I thought the understanding was at least we'd rely on the same evidence to present supplemental argument with respect to the Ad Hoc Committee's motion as well. Yeah, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I mean, the, the Ad Hoc motion um, is obviously related. And, and so we did think it made sense to um, at least have the court consider the evidentiary uh, basis and arguments today. That's fine. Honor, if I may. Yeah. Ken Pasquale again, Paul Hastings for the committee. Um, one thing, just so your honor is aware of how we plan to uh, split responsibilities on the joint motion is the debtors will be responsible for the 107B presentation and argument, and the committee will be handling the 107C. Okay, thank you. Please raise your right hand. Please state in full your full name and spell your last name for the court record, please. Michael Kofsky, C-O-F-S-K-Y. Do you affirm that you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the best of your knowledge and abilities? I do. You may be seated. Your Honor. Good afternoon, Mr. Kofsky. Good afternoon. Uh, Mr. Kofsky, can you please provide the court um, as a reminder uh, with your background um, and experience, uh, please, if you would. Uh, yes, I, um, I'm a partner at Perella Weinberg Partners. Um, I was um, a graduate from the Wharton School um, in 1992. Um, I uh, was a, an analyst at Houlihan Loki in the restructuring area um, for two years before I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania Law School and uh, University of Pennsylvania Bell Center of Government um, I practiced law for several years, um, clerking, um, as well as uh, as a corporate lawyer, Cravath, Swain, and Moore, um, and then returned to banking um, and have been um, focused in the restructuring area since approximately 2001. Um, and I've been a partner at Perella. I've been at Perella since 2007, and I've been a partner since uh, 2015. Mr. Kofsky, can you please describe briefly for the court um, the scope of work with yourself and your colleagues at Perella Weinberg Partners have been um, doing pursuant to your retention uh, in these chapter 11 cases for the debtors? Uh, yes. Um, Perella Weinberg Partners is acting as the investment banker to the debtors in this matter. Um, a number of wide-ranging areas, including um, the uh, exploration of um, the monetization of various assets, um, as well as working uh, with the other professionals and the uh, management team and the board and the other stakeholders to evaluate a potential um, 
plan of reorganization um, and the ultimate exit of the Chapter 11 cases. Can you please um, describe briefly for the court <coughs> your experience in terms of uh, monetization of businesses, including with respect to customer lists over the course of your career? Uh, yes, I, I think we've um, dealt with this in my, my prior testimony, my declaration. Um, I, I have represented a number of uh, companies and, and businesses with respect to uh, 363 sales and plan of reorganization sales, um, a number of which um, involve customers. And um, as I testified previously and as uh, was in my original uh, declaration, um, my understanding and, and belief is that the customers um, have, uh, in this case, material value to the estate. The, the identities and the lists of those customers and the ability of other um, competitors uh, to, um, to gain knowledge of those um, customers um, would be detrimental to the estate. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I can do that. Is that better? Yes, oh, much better. Mr. Kofsky, can you please um, elaborate a bit and explain to the court your view today, as you sit here today, as to whether you believe there is value in the FTX debtors' customer list? I, I do. Um, as uh, I indicated earlier, part of the uh, work that Prell Weinberg Partners is undertaking is uh, an evaluation of the, the potential to monetize or reorganize the, uh, the assets of the estate, including the exchange. Um, the estate has approximately 9 million customers, and as we evaluate uh, the potential for um, the treatment of that exchange going forward, uh, we believe that the existing customer base um, is extraordinarily valuable. Um, and we, we, our understanding is based on our research and um, having looked at the costs incurred by other crypto companies specifically uh, to solicit customers. Um, we have also already engaged in a significant outreach process with respect to solicitation of third party interest in participating in a process to either acquire, invest into, or reorganize uh, the FTX exchange. Um, and based on those conversations, uh, again, it's our understanding that the uh, existing customers um, are extremely valuable and valued by folks who would be interested in investing into um, a reorganized business. Mr. Kofsky, do you have a view on whether um, the debtor's customer lists, lists are a potential source of value in a situation where the debtors reorganize versus sell the exchange? I think that the uh, existing customers and that list is valuable in both contexts. Um, to the extent that uh, the business would be reorganized, um, those customers would likely be very interested um, if they're going to own a portion or a significant portion of the reorganized business. Uh, they would be very interested in trading on that exchange um, to generate incremental equity value, enterprise value for their new holdings of that. Um, similarly, if the estate um, monetizes or seeks an investment from third parties into the exchange, that same value would, um, would ultimately inure to the benefit of those customers. 
do you view the debtor's customer list as potentially having value on an independent basis? Uh, I do. Um, I, uh, again, as we have seen in... state the question. Mr. Kofsky, do you, do you have a view as to whether you might be able as a debtor's investment banker to monetize the customer list itself um, and, and, and create value for the estate? Yes. Uh, so uh, I, I understand the question to be, um, we, you've asked me if I think that the identities of the customers and the customer list would be valuable to um, the business if it's reorganized and the business by third parties if it is um, sold or otherwise seeks a third-party investment. I, I take this question to mean um, would the list be valuable if we were unable to sell or chose not to sell and or were unable or chose not to reorganize but simply to sell the customer list and I do believe that would be valuable and the basis for that belief is the conversations we've had initially with third parties. You, you, you testified um, on these issues before this court back in January um, with respect to the same questions about sealing the customer list. Do you recall that? I, I recall that, yes. And do you recall at the time uh, back in January um, you offered testimony to the court around the question of whether um, disclosure of the customer list would jeopardize uh, the debtor's ability to maximize value? Do you recall that? I do. Um, as you sit here today, um, do you have a view today as to whether the immediate disclosure of the debtor's customer list would jeopardize the debtor's ability to maximize value? I, I do. I believe that um, releasing that information, um, that information is, is valuable, as I said, and I, I think that releasing that information um, would impair the debtor's ability to maximize the value that it currently uh, possesses. Mr. Kofsky, could you um, please provide information for the court as to what you and your team have been doing since January in order to try to begin to realize the value from the customer? Um, yes, as I indicated, we have um, spent considerable time uh, working with the debtors, other professionals, the UCC professionals, um, to evaluate uh, the potential for a um, reorganization of the exchange. Uh, the core exchange, um, as well as the potential to seek third-party investment into that or to sell that exchange. Uh, and as I indicated, uh, we have reached out to a significant number of third parties uh, and have begun the process of discussions with respect to that evaluation process with those third parties. And can you just clarify when you say the core <coughs> exchange, what you're referring to there? Uh, the, the international exchange, um, although we've also um, evaluated the U.S. exchange and the potential um, for that to be reorganized or not. In your view, is there still work remaining to be done with respect to realizing um, the future, if any, of the FTX.com exchange? Uh, yes, there is still significant work to be done, as I indicated. Um, we have been working hard uh, to evaluate uh, and seek to implement the potential to reorganize that exchange, but there's a lot of work that would need to be done um, in order to accomplish that. Uh, in addition, as I indicated uh, earlier, we have 
begun the process of uh, discussions with third parties, but we're in the early stages of that process, and that will take some time. As you sit here today, do you have any sense as to um, generally how long it might take to complete that process? The process may, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I don't have specificity for you. Um, the process is uncertain insofar as we're relying on third party participation uh, to understand the interest in acquiring or investing into the rehabilitation of that um, that core exchange. We are also potentially going to implement that reorganization through a 363 sale or through a plan of reorganization. So in many ways, the ultimate outcome may be tied to the outcome of this case, and it's difficult to determine with specificity exactly when that might be. What is your view with respect to your ongoing process um, from the immediate disclosure of the debtor's customer list, if any? Can you repeat that question, sure, please? Let me rephrase the question. Do you have a view as to whether your current process would be impacted by the immediate disclosure of the debtor's customer list? Yes, I think it would be negatively impacted, um, potentially significantly. Mr. Tchaikovsky, um, in connection with um, your ongoing analysis, ha has your, have you and your team uh, formed a view as to whether uh, competitors would be able to locate and contact the debtor's customers if only <coughs> their names were publicly disclosed? We have. Um, I testified briefly on this, um, excuse me, in my last uh, testimony. Um, we've gone out and uh, looked at the top 200 customers um, to validate uh, what I had testified with respect to a, a smaller number of customers. And um, with that... I'm going to object um, based on his prior testimony. I understand this was not personally done by the witness, so maybe he could clarify to what extent he did this work personally. Want to establish a foundation? Uh, Mr. Kofsky, let's back up a half step. Um, can you describe um, your involvement in the work that you're beginning to talk about with respect to the analysis of customer names in preparation of your testimony? Yes. Um, I, I personally looked at the um, spreadsheet that included all of the names, um, and I directed my team to do the research to determine the extent to which they would be able to identify customers on that list um, based solely on the customer names. Uh, and I discussed, uh, it was an iterative process, and we talked about the methodology to, to do that. Uh, and we talked about what information was located and whether that um, ultimately could be deemed to be uh, an identification or a highly likely identification or, or something else. So I would object <coughs> to any testimony based on what any other person told this witness and not what he himself, if, if he did the research, it sounds like he did not. So I object to any testimony that's based upon information that was given to him by another person. Your Honor, I, I believe Mr. Kofsky uh, should be able to testify with respect to work that was done in his direction that he was involved with and review. Um, as for the outputs of and has um, is, is prepared to testify about. 
I'll overrule the objection. <clears throat> Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Kofsky, we were talking, you said in <coughs> furtherance to the discussion that in the testimony you provided in January, you subsequent to that um, commissioned and participated in a analysis of the debtor's top 200 customers, correct? That's correct. Right. Um, I'm sorry, would you mind if I get some water, please? Oh, sure, sure. Hold on. Thank you. Never saw such a flurry of activity. <laughs> There's a lot of people standing at the ready to assist. Could I have the question repeated because I didn't hear how many customers it was? Uh, Mr. Koski, could you please um, explain for the court the scope of the analysis that you uh, commissioned with your team on the topic of um, whether uh, revelation of customer names uh, would be enough for competitors to locate those customers. Yes, we looked at the top 200 customers, which um, I, I recognize is a subset of the 9 million potential customers um, based on the dollar amount of the claims at petition date um, that would represent um, approximately 2.4 billion of claims, which we thought was a reasonable um, set of customer names to review. And, and can you describe for the court um, both the analysis that you did and the findings of that analysis? Yes, uh, we did an analysis um, by looking through Google, by looking through LinkedIn, and by looking through uh, Twitter feeds. Um, this is not our core area of expertise. I, I actually believe that um, a um, well-funded and um, persistent um, party might be able to gain um, more confidence, but we want it to be um, reasonable with our time. And the results were, um, we thought were compelling. Um, and the results were that with respect to, we, we looked at this from a, I can describe it on a percentage basis as well as a dollar number of claims, but the percent of the 200 customers that uh, we were able to identify purely on the basis of names uh, was approximately 46%. 34% um, of those we deemed to be um, highly likely that we had identified them. Um, the uh, additional 12% we viewed as likely, um, but um, not 100% certain. On a dollar basis, we were able to locate in excess of a billion dollars of those claims, which represented, um, I believe, 30, uh, I'm sorry, 42% um, of the 200, the total $2.4 billion. That's the, um, greater than a billion dollars of located claims. Mr. Kossi, um, debtors also have customers uh, on their customer <coughs> list who, as of the petition date, had uh, zero dollar balances, correct? Yes. Um, do you have a view as to whether customers who had a zero dollar balance on the petition date uh, would still be valuable names uh, if publicly revealed? Yes, I, I do. Um, our analysis did not uh, go 
back to determine the extent to which those customers um, withdrew significant funds prior to the filing. Um, our analysis and, and what I summarized related solely to the value of those claims at the petition date. Obviously, another work stream will be the determination of whether there are preference actions or not, but even beyond that, um, to the extent that there were customers who at one time or another had material balances and or traded significantly on the exchange and generated material value for the exchange, uh, those types of customers would be valuable, I believe, to um, the exchange going forward. Um, and the customer list um, that we're talking about, I think, would be valuable to um, third parties if they were interested in acquiring that um, because ultimately they're not focused on whether there's uh, a balance at the time of the filing. They're focused on the extent to which those customers would trade and generate revenue for them going forward. Uh, Mr. Kotsky, how, how did the results of the analysis that you did inform your view, <coughs> if at all, as to whether or not disclosure of the customer names on their own would jeopardize the debtor's ability to maximize value? They reinforced that belief. Um, they uh, they validated that belief that those customers um, could be identified um, with reasonable effort, uh, and that to the extent that the names alone were not redacted and were released, uh, customers would uh, clients other third parties that would otherwise need to expend resources in order to solicit those customers and or would need to. Um, compensate the debtor in order to acquire those identities would no longer have an interest in doing so or would have a lesser significantly lesser interest in doing so and does your view as to the value of individual uh, of customer <coughs> names include uh, both individual and institutional customers contained on the customer list yes that's correct No further questions, Your Honor. Thank you. <coughs> Cross? Thanks, Your Honor. Uh, nope. just additional, just one additional direction. Oh, go ahead. Yep. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, for the record, David Wender with Evershed Sutherland, counsel for the Ad Hoc Committee of Non-U.S. Customers. Good afternoon, Mr. Mr. Kosky. Just a few short questions. Because um, you spoke about disclosing the names and, and how that might Im impact the value. Um, the disclosure of the names or customer information, either by the debtor or other parties, that would similarly impact value. Is that your understanding or belief? Yes. M my belief is that disclosure of the names, regardless of who disclosed them, would um, degrade value. This might be a dumb <coughs> question, and I apologize. Um, are you familiar with Bankruptcy Rule 2019? Not by the number. That, that's perfect. It, it's a rule that requires when customers or creditors act in concert, they have to disclose names, address, and information relative to holdings. If if a group of creditors had to disclose their names, their address, and holdings, would that be detrimental to value of, of those people as well and to the debtor? Um, my belief is that disclosure of any customer identities would degrade value. Great. Thank you.
now across it. <coughs> Good afternoon, uh, Sir Juliet Sarkeesian, on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. I do have a few questions for you. Now, some of your testimony related to the value of the customer names in a situation in which the debtors reorganized, correct? Correct. And based on either what you've heard today or your familiarity with the debtors, you have an understanding of approximately when the debtors believe they're likely to get a confirmed plan. I, yes, I, I have a, I saw the work plan that was put on the screen earlier. Right. Yeah. And it was um, second quarter, I believe, of next year. Is that correct? I believe that's correct, yes. And do you, un do you understand whether from the petition date the customer accounts have all been frozen? Is that right? That's my understanding. Okay. Customers cannot get access to either their cryptocurrency or cash that they have in the accounts. Is that right? That's my understanding. Okay. <coughs> and is it your understanding that that freeze would continue at least until uh, a plan was confirmed and then went effective? I, I believe that would be the case. That's my understanding. And so that would be more than a year with these accounts being frozen, correct? Unfortunately, yes, I think that's the and math. Customers can't even get to the cash that they have in the accounts, right? I believe that's correct, yes. Okay. So. With that in mind, it, does the fact that, that those accounts have been frozen for that long impact the value of the customer list? You know what, I'm sorry, let me withdraw that question. I forgot we were talking about reorganization. So if the debtors reorganize, is it your belief that despite having their accounts frozen for over a year, that the debtors' customers will want to continue with the reorganized, continue to be customers with the reorganized debtors? I do. Um, I'm also hopeful that we can um, accomplish an outcome in a shorter period of time. But yes, I, I believe that at the, at the time at which a um, reconstituted exchange is able to be stood up um, and customers have the ability to trade on that, I believe that they will want to do so. Can I ask you why you think that? For somebody who's not been able to get the cash out of their accounts, let alone crypto, for over a year, that they're going to want to continue with the company that froze their accounts? Uh, yes. Um, it's a very good question. Um, we believe that if a, um, an exchange is reorganized, it will be done so in a manner which will be um, regulatorily compliant, um, will ensure that the custody of the customer accounts going forward are un unambiguously secure and will provide a trading platform uh, that will be um, first class and that given the opportunity um, from a number of respects to participate on that exchange as opposed to um, the exchanges that are currently available to them, um, they would much prefer to trade on that form of a platform. Um, and significantly, um, the 
at, at the moment, and, and I believe highly likely, the customers will be um, by far the largest creditors of this estate. Uh, and so if we reorganized the exchange going forward, those customers would be uh, equity owners potentially um, of all or a significant portion of that reorganized exchange. And so having the ability to transact on the exchange where they are equity owners um, as opposed to transacting on another exchange where they're generating fees for another exchange that they don't own, um, I think would be an easy question for them. I think they would much prefer to transact on an exchange where the fees that they're paying are ultimately benefiting their own equity holdings. Is the concept that you're talking about with the customers being equity holders, <coughs> well, first of all, what percentage of the equity do you think that the customers will actually hold? We're talking about 10 percent? Objection, well, I, I think we're getting pretty far afield, and to the extent we're talking about a plan that's in formation, I'm not sure that's appropriate testimony at this stage. Yeah, I, d I don't know what the relevance would be at this point. Well, Your Honor, his testimony was that these customer, these names of customers are valuable if we reorganize mm -hmm. be with the idea that they're going to stay with the exchange. And you said one of the reasons they're going to stay with the exchange is they're going to be equity owners. That was his That's testimony. That's one, one of the possible outcomes. I one of the possible. So I'm asking him about that possible outcome. What's the question? The question is when you're saying it's based on when you're saying your testimony is based on the assumption that they're going to be equity owners, <coughs> what percentage of the equity are you anticipating that they would own? Well, I think that's that's speculation at this point. I, I, I would object. You know, I, well, I think Ms. Um, Martinez's question mis does misstate the testimony, but I think this is all speculation at this point. Mr. Gosky simply testified as to one of the possible outcomes. Sustained. Thank you. Let me ask a different question. Um, your testimony that these customers would remain, you, you believe that these customers would remain uh, with the FTX platform in a reorganization and therefore their names are valuable. Is that based on an understanding that they would be getting equity in lieu of getting their actual accounts back, the money that's in their actual accounts? I would um, hope and I would hope that we can recover all of the value that people put on the platform, but that remains uncertain. And so to the extent that those customers do not receive 100% of their funds back for any reason, they will have incremental claims. Um, and it's those claims um, that I'm referring to, which is the extent to which we will, the, the estate will have assets to satisfy those claims. And, and I do want to be clear and, and also responsive to your question. Um, whether the exchange is reorganized or whether the exchange is sold or whether the exchange is um, part of a partnership or receives investment from third parties for a portion of the equity, a significant portion of the value of that enterprise going forward, I believe, will be the customers, their identity, and the extent to which they're going to trade on this platform or another platform. So 
the questions you ask are very good. It's just that, and, and I apologize for not being able to be more specific, but we're at the early stages of evaluating which one of those potential alternatives we think will maximize value. I understand there's a lot of um, suppositions in your testimony. I was just trying to test them to make sure I fully understand um, what, what your testimony was based on. So let me ask a, a different question. Um, <coughs> you testified that you also believe that the names of the customers would be valuable, that they could be monetized uh, either just in and of themselves, right, a customer list to be sold. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's one alternative. And then they also could be monetized as part of a 360 three sale, correct? Is that also? I, maybe I missed. Yes, I think those are maybe the same thing, but selling the customer list um, solely or selling assets together with the customer list, whether those assets include an exchange or some other package of assets is one possibility, I would think. And in connection with that, did you have an opportunity to review the declaration of Jeremy Sheridan that has been um, filed in support of the, this motion? I did not. Um, a moment, Your Honor, I'm sorry. Are you aware of whether Mr. Sh <coughs> sorry. Are, are you aware of whether the um, customers of FTX also use other platforms, other uh, cryptocurrency platforms? I, I'm not aware either way. Now I want to go to your testimony about. Um, determining that you looked at it, you, your um, people you were supervising, you indicated looked at <laughs> approximately 200 customers um, to see if just using their names, more information could be located, correct? Yes, we looked at a 200 precisely. Um, and we, the objective was to determine whether we could identify those individuals and locate them. So right, so that was my question. What was the other, in, you were looking for, if you could find addresses, like res, like street addresses or email addresses or both? Uh, we wanted to determine using, again, limited resources, which was just Google, LinkedIn, and, um, and Twitter, whether we could identify and locate those individuals and find a way to contact them. And, and, um, and so that, that was the objective, was to determine the extent to which um, solely the identities of those individuals would be valuable and part of that value is finding a way to actually locate these people and, and solicit them if you're a competitor and want to get them to trade on your platform. And so that would be either a street address or an email address or both? Or, um, or, or, or another way to locate them, um, for example, on Twitter, oh, okay. Facebook, so other social media platforms. Now, of those 200, do you know how many of them were individuals versus uh, some type of corporate entity? I, I don't know offhand. That information was in the 
the spreadsheet, but I don't recall offhand. Those are uh, all the questions I have for this witness. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Mayor. Uh, David Finger, Finger and Slamini on behalf of the media intervening. At this time, I'd like to introduce to the court uh, Katie, Katie Townsend of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, <coughs> attorney with them for the Michigan Project which has been granted and with the court's permission, she will present on behalf of the media interveners. Okay, thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon, Mr. Kofsky. My name is Katie Townsend. I'm one of the attorneys representing the media interveners in this matter. I'll try not to retread any ground that Ms. Sarkeesian just covered, but um, just to clarify, <coughs> of the, you have no idea sitting here today how many of debtors' 9 million customers are already using a competitor platform. Is that correct? I do not know that sitting here today. That's correct. Of the top 200 uh, customers that you you directed your team to take a look at, you don't know how many of those 200 are already using a competitor platform, do you? I, I do not know that. Um, does it matter for purposes of the value that you ascribe to um, the customer base, whether or not those individuals are using or institutions are already using other another platform? Um, to the extent that they are using another platform for a longer period of time, um, that injects risk to that value. It, it would degrade that value over time. It wouldn't eliminate that value, but sure, the, we will be competing um, for those customers. Just to be clear so I understand where the, the value <coughs> here is coming from, the value of the customer base is their actual use of the platform, correct? It's not their name, it's whether or not they have an account on the platform. Is that accurate? Um, I, I don't think that's accurate if I understand the question properly. Um, but the, the, um, the customers are on the platform and occur on the list that I reviewed, the 9 million mm -hmm. customers, because they traded on the platform. They therefore um, are, because they've traded on the platform and generated revenues for the historical exchange, they therefore um, would more likely than not be folks who are interested in crypto and would trade on crypto um, on another exchange or on this exchange. And so the identities of these clients as being um, customers of FTX are valuable to competitors who are looking to attract additional customers to their platform. And it is much more efficient for them to um, solicit the customers of FTX directly to trade on their platform, as an example, than it would be to just have a generalized um, marketing um, endeavor. But so long as those customers, even if they're trading on that other platform, continue to trade on the FTX platform, that doesn't affect the value of that customer to FTX, does it? Yes, it does. How so? Um, so to the extent that we are not currently trading, um, over time, 
the longer um, those customers are on another platform, um, the greater the risk is. That's, it doesn't mean that they become worthless, but it means that to the extent that we are reorganizing the platform, um, and we're, we're well aware of this, and, and time is a critical issue. And so to the extent that we are able to reorganize the platform in a shorter amount of time and get these customers um, an environment that is secure and regulatorily compliant that they can trade on, um, the less we have to worry about a competing platform. Um, but like any um, business, to the extent that your customers are um, utilizing services at a competitor, they're less valuable to you. Let, let me ask it this way. If all of the 9 million <coughs> customers who had accounts at the FTX platform stopped using that platform, the value of that asset that customer base is zero. Is that fair to say? No. What is the value of that asset if they're no longer using the platform? Well, those customers are no longer using the platform today because it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that they don't want to use the platform, okay. and it doesn't mean that they have declared that they are never going to trade crypto again. I think quite to the contrary, um, as I said, with only 200 of the top customers, their um, claims as of the petition date um, were $2.4 billion. I think those would be highly valuable potential customers for any platform, and people would pay a lot of money to, to know who those people are and try to get them to trade on their platform. Whether they're on uh, one platform today, um, all of the other platforms, I'm sure, would like to pay to know who those people are. <coughs> What's your basis for saying that you're sure that other platforms would pay to know who those people are? Um, as was indicated in my original declaration, um, the other exchanges have programs in place. Um, they pay money to, um, for referral programs. They pay commissions to solicit customers. So those customers are valuable, and um, finding them um, is worth paying for. Um, they've indicated that through their actions, um, and in our early stages of outreach with respect to the third-party process, um, we have received that input that the customer lists themselves are valuable to people. Have you done any kind of survey of customers to test their views on whether they intend to stay with the platform, whether it's reorganized or, or sold or continues in some other fashion? Um, we have not had a formalized outreach process, um, but we have had uh, a long engagement and robust um, process. Um, the process that I described for the potential reorganization and the third-party outreach is, is being done um, together with the Unsecured Creditors Committee that represents those customers, and we have regular conversations with the members of the committee themselves who um, are customers. But you didn't under attempt to undertake any of the kind of survey or um, research uh, in connection, specific research to, to ascertain that information? I want to make sure I'm, I, we haven't um, undertaken a, a broad market analysis, um, but I want to make sure I'm answering your question. Is that what you're asking? You haven't attempted to specifically identify or do any kind of, like I said, survey to identify how many of the, let's say, top 200 customers would want to stay um, on the, continue to trade on the platform, have you? 
I have not asked them, no. Um, you testified previously <coughs> that part of the basis for your opinions um, were bids that you examined in the um, Celsius bankruptcy, is that right? I don't think I said that. Um, I believe you testified that uh, on the January 12th, during the January 12th second day hearing, that um, we also, and I'm just, just to refresh your recollection, we also reviewed the bids that had been submitted in the Voyager case and in the Celsius case, and took note of the fact that not only were customer assets and lists being acquired in and a value ascribed to the business itself, but that they, these were actually incremental elements of value which would be allocated to each customer that went on to the acquirer's platform. Do you recall that testimony? Um, I, I do. Um, I would prefer if you can put that in front of me, um, if that's possible, if you're going to ask questions about that. If it's helpful, I, I don't intend to ask questions about the testimony itself, but I did want to ask a little bit about the bids that you reviewed in the Celsius case. I don't know that I said bids. I would like to see what I said to make sure that uh, I, I, it was five months ago and I want to make sure that well, I'm... Let me strike that. Have you reviewed bids in the Celsius bankruptcy case? I, in the Celsius case, yes, I did. And there was recently a three-way auction in that bankruptcy case, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And that three-way auction involved um, Fahrenheit, which was the winning bidder, is that correct? Um, they have been selected as the highest and the best, but they have not, uh, to my knowledge, been approved by the bankruptcy court yet. Okay, and did you review Fahrenheit's bid in the Celsius bankruptcy? I did. I'm not sure it's proper for me to be speaking about anything further about that in this matter, given the confidentiality agreements I have in that case, but yes, I did. Your, your Honor, I'm, I'm going to object at this point. Mr. Kofsky has not testified at all today about anything in the record of this hearing with respect to Celsius. Counsel is now asking him about bids that are pending before another court um, that he may have reviewed outside of his engagement for FTX. And so I, I, I don't see how this is either um, responsive to his direct testimony uh, or appropriate. Oh, Your Honor, he um, previously testified that part of the basis for his opinions and the opinions that he's offering are bids that he reviewed in the Celsius bankruptcy matter and in the Voyager bankruptcy matter. There have been some developments in those cases that I think I'm entitled to ask him about, given that he's here to update his testimony on things that he has learned or um, what has proceeded since the January 11th hearing. So, well, I think he testified that he wasn't, he didn't recall testifying that he had reviewed bids, and that's why he wanted to review the actual testimony I, itself, I, which you didn't show him. So, I'm not going to hold him to that. And if he has confidentiality agreements, he's representing somebody else in connection with the Celsius case. I'm not going to let him violate those confidentiality agreements. Um, I'm happy to show him the testimony, Your Honor. He's already testified that in those bids that he reviewed, there was incremental value attached not only to the customer base as a whole, but individual customer names. That's the entire basis of his testimony, so I, I, I would like to explore that to some extent. I don't know what's the entire basis of his testimony, but... Your Honor, <laughs> it's, it's the, the, the value. entire basis, and it's 0% it's of his testimony today. 
and the bid that counsel is asking him about now didn't exist in January. She's asking about a bid that, it, by her recitation of this, was just put before the Celsius Bankruptcy Court. So I renew my relevance objection here. I sustain it. Let's move on. Just one moment. No further questions, Your Honor. Thank you. Any other cross? Redirect? Uh, no further questions, Your Honor. All right. Thank you. I'm going to step down. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Foster. Um, so now we have Mr. Sheridan. I'm anticipating he's going to take more than 25 minutes. Yes, Your Honor. Um, and I hate to leave witnesses. I hate to leave witnesses hanging overnight. Uh, if it's not necessary. Uh, and since we're coming back tomorrow morning, why don't we just pick up with Mr. Sheridan in the morning? Um, anything else we can do in the meantime before we recess for the day? Uh, Your Honor, just to clarify, what time uh, would you like to resume tomorrow? Uh, let's start at 9.30 tomorrow. 9.30? Okay, thank you very much, Your Honor. Anything else before we recess? Uh, not from the desk, Your Honor. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We'll recess till 9.30 tomorrow morning.